0: And welcome back to Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 106. And we are back from our brief one-week hiatus to return to the G1 Climax. And I'm very happy to be joined by a returning guest. Hello, Hannah. Hello there. Lovely to be
1: on. Uh I'm doing very good. I actually am very excited to be back in the swing of this because uh, I kind of stopped watching wrestling for a good while. After uh, Hiromu got injured last year, I kind of went on a tour of trying to, you know, pick up the best stuff from uh, promotions that I hadn't been watching as much. So I watched a bunch of Masashi Takeda matches. Um, I got to see what LA Park is all about. Um, But then I just, you know, kind of quit cold turkey and just now came back for the G1. So uh, it's been a very interesting perspective, like, coming back in on it.
0: Yeah, and I think... You know i i feel like those kind of like breaks are i think everybody goes through that you know i know i did like around 2011 would have been like the time when i watched the least amount of wrestling yeah but but i think it's a, those are healthy breaks for it, especially when you're as into this as you know i think you and i are and probably most of our listeners you know those kind of breaks to give you like a fresh perspective I think can be pretty important.
1: Yeah, it, it does mean that I'm able to enjoy parts of this G1 um, without like already being sick of some of it. Um, although, like as as we'll see in uh, how I end up rating some of this stuff, my biases are very much in play, and stuff that I was sick of before I stopped
0: watching is stuff that I'm still sick of. So it's mm. gonna be cool to see that um but yeah so we're here catching up basically with a bunch of knights of the g1 um as i mentioned we were off last week i was at otakon in dc which was, was fun time. it was a fun time i always i i'd never really have a bad otakon so i can't really say it was bad i wouldn't put it as like a top tier otakon either it was probably just middle tier but i had a good time um Still getting used to the new DC digs. Have you ever been to Otakon, Hannah? Or no, I forget.
1: Oh, no, sorry. Okay. I've, uh, the only anime con that I've been to was one Anime Boston okay. around, like, I want to say eight years ago or so. We are
0: probably, um, well, we probably in the same place then because I've been to, like, I, I definitely would have been to Anime Boston. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. But yeah, yeah, I
1: cosplayed as Hazama from uh, Blaze Blue Calamity Trigger, and it was a very fun time. And then I just never went to any more anime convention.
0: <laughs> but yeah, this was like my I, my second straight Otakon in DC since they moved from Baltimore. I, I missed the first one in 2017 when they moved because I was in a, I was in Japan at the time, actually. So this is you know it's still getting used to DC. I think I like it more in the second year than I did in the first year. Where it was just such like a, like a shock moving from Baltimore to DC, like just a completely different area. Uh, I still don't, the surrounding area is still like, I don't know. I mean, people who know DC, it's very it's like downtown DC, so it's very like you know sterile, I guess mm-hmm. is the best word. So, you know, there's the, I don't I don't like the area as much, but yeah. like the Convention Center itself is nice. It's a
1: city it's where, nice. where you're issued a lanyard the moment you walk into city limits.
0: Yeah basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it, the convention was fun. Had a good time hosting the New Japan panel. I hope people enjoyed it if they went. I know that we, we had at least one listener there, which is really cool. So awesome. I, I hope if you, um, you know, if you went, you enjoyed the panel. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty much Oticon. But that means we have a lot of shows to catch up on here. Basically seven shows all the way through from the July... 24th show in Hiroshima all the way through today so we're going to start out with that show July 24th Hiroshima Sun Plaza Hall uh, the first G1 match was Juice Robinson defeating Toro Yano in 428 with the Pulp Friction that moved Juice to 3-1 and one and dropped Yano to 2-2 two and two. now I know as our most uh probably the, the person highest on these Yano matches of anyone I know What'd you think of this one? I don't think I'm actually the highest on you.
1: Cause uh, no. I, when I recently uh, I think I was replying to a Russell tweet asking like, Hey, I haven't had time to watch G1 stuff. You know, what are some good matches for me to catch up on? And I kind of like listed my five uh, favorite wrestlers of the tournament so far. And, I got a couple of responses to be like, where's Yano? Where's Yano? Wow. <laughs> so believe me, There's people who are even more in love with Yano's performances than I am. Um, but I did like this match. I thought that um, it was one of his strongest ones from the first half of the tournament or so. Um, I generally wasn't feeling Yano quite as much as I did last year, but I loved this uh, in large part because... I think Juice plays really well off against Tiano. Juice is somebody who wrestles really dumb a lot of the time. Like, yeah. you know, he was very open about, like, uh, that famous promo that he had where he was like, oh, you got smarts, but I got uh, heart and I got nuts, right? So he is not somebody who wrestles crafty, but to see him get that invested in outsmarting the sublime Master Thief was a really fun time.
0: Yeah, I think this I, this probably was my favorite Yano match so far, too. I thought, like, all the stuff with the exposed turnbuckle, like, really set it up to the point where I thought Yano was actually going to win. So that always helps. Like, he, it just felt like a match where Yano could have won. But yeah. like, Juice kind of, like, pulled it out in the end. Um, and like you said, Juice is, like, a great straight man. You know, like, really just... He, he like took the handshake at one point, which is like almost like you almost deserve to lose for being that stupid to take handshake. But he just at one point like there's there's a great photo on the New Japan website of like Yano going for the low blow and Juice looking at him like very angrily and sternly like what are you even doing now? So he just great. He was just great like playing off of Yano there. Yeah, yeah I went three and a, three and a quarter. I enjoyed it.
1: Uh, three and three quarters for me and. uh, I think that, you know, Juice is somebody who I've been very much enjoying this tournament. And I I feel like he has just been so much uh, better positioned this year than last year, where every single match was just a storyline of like, oh, he's injured. He can't do shit. He's not going to win. But here, they've actually allowed him to have like his own style and his own identity as a wrestler, not just as an injury. So I've been very much enjoying this year's juice.
0: Match number two, the uh, Taichi defeating Hiroki Goto in 12-11 with the Taichi-style Gato Clutch. Uh, moves him to two and two, and drops Goto to one and three at this point. This one I didn't really enjoy. Um, you know, I've, I thought their matches last year were better than people gave it credit for, but like this was the one where I'm like, well, I can kind of understand where people are coming from. Um, I mean, look, I I, I think people a lot of people are gonna blame any underwhelming match on Tai Chi, because that's how people are with Tai Chi, but mm-hmm. I really don't think Goto's had a great tournament. And this was another one where I was like, uh, I don't know what Goto's doing here. Yeah. I mean, there was a there was a long period where it felt like he was like barely selling for Tai Chi's control period and then just like hit a very weak Lariat at the end of it, which just made sure the entire thing came off super flat. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it picked up a little bit after that, but, you know, you just, like, then you, Goto just kind of gets hit in the deck and pinned, which kind of sums up his G1, I think, like, holding his, <laughs> holding his crotch in pain on the on the ground. But yeah, I only went three stars on it. I thought there was some good action towards the end that sort of saved it, but I really can't imagine going above that.
1: Yeah, so I'm 100% with you on this being more Goto's fault than Taichi's fault. Um and in general on Tai Chi having a better tournament and honestly being a better wrestler than Goto, um, I think that I was really disappointed by this match. I was expecting this to be one of the Goto ones that I like because I think what turns me off from him so much at a time is that he has this persona where he's this very sort of like proud spirited warrior who's, you know, gonna hit you with these stiff strikes and have a lot of fighting spirit. But um, it always just feels like it's half effort, unless he's against somebody who really pisses him off. Then he can be fantastic. Um, but that didn't happen this match. And I could have sworn that it was going to, given that, you know, Tai Chi is such a weaselly little shit. But they really leaned more into the striker Tai Chi than the weaselly little shit Tai Chi in this match. And I don't think that was the best decision. If there's one thing I can fault Tai Chi for in the construction of his match, it is that. Um, because like you said, Goto just wasn't selling for anything. He wasn't really reacting to much of anything. And just kind of felt autopilot. Whereas, you know, you can have such a fun and memorable match with somebody as unique and goofy of a character as Tai Chi.
0: Yeah, I it agree. Was and- two and a quarter for me. So even oh, wow. lower than you, yeah. I mean it didn't even it, it just didn't feel like it played into Tai Chi's strength at all. It just felt like I don't know, Goto's wrestled a lot yeah. of very samey, very samey matches in this tournament, I think. So yeah.
1: Taichi can um, have really good brawls, but this wasn't it.
0: Yeah. Uh the third match, John Moxley defeating Shingo Takagi in fourteen forty five with the Texas Cloverleaf. It moved Moxley to four 0 dropped Shingo to two and two. Um so I thought that the start of this was awesome, where and up until there was like a weird like dive to the floor where I guess Shingo was supposed to catch him, but Moxie was like too short. You know, like he just didn't quite make it. But they yeah. almost made up for that immediately with that like really sick Death Valley driver on the floor. So I can kind of overlook that, even though obviously I'm still going to take that as a flaw. Um, there was like the legwork stuff I thought was really good. Shingo is like an underrated seller, and I thought he really got to show it here. Um, and then. This is like also where I really like realized that Moxley was like a Japanese tape guy. Like this is a guy who's watched a lot of mid nineties all Japan tapes because he did that like German no cell Lariat spot exactly like he was doing like a Misawa cosplay. It was very yeah. just very amusing to watch and like I don't know, I think people had the wrong not the wrong idea about him, but I don't know if you told me like three years ago, you're like, was Dean Ambrose watching a lot of mid nineties, all Japan. I probably would have said, I don't know, maybe not, but yeah. apparently, apparently he was, cause you can tell he's just enjoying getting to do all that stuff. Um, the only, again, the big flaw I took off the N four was, you know, there was a spot at the end where they called, they basically called a spot right in the middle of the big finishing stretch. Mm-hmm. And he did it really, obviously like he, they didn't like, grab a headlock or even like do it in the corner. He just kind of like leaned down and just called his spot, which was really bad and just took me out of the, the finishing stretch completely. Um, but with all that, I still had to give it four and a quarter because I thought it was a really awesome match at the legwork paid off with the club relief finish. Yeah. Um, but there were just enough big flaws. that I couldn't go higher, higher than four and a quarter.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, You're absolutely right about the the joy of discovering King's Road Moxley,
0: and (laughs)
1: uh, I have been just completely surprised by him this tournament. Me too. Yeah, in the matches like before the ones that we're covering, I was very much like, "Mm, yeah, maybe he kind of sucks. Maybe it's just that like I have still Shield nostalgia that was clouding me. But you know, it wasn't WWE that was like holding him back. But I think that when he plays to his strengths, he is as good as anyone in this tournament. He has some glaring weaknesses. He, uh, can't punch. He can't dive and he can't run. And those are like three of the basic things that you do in a wrestling match. So like, yeah, I did take off, you know, some, some points for that really bad looking dive, which, you know, is his worst one of the tournament, but let's be honest, they all suck. But, um, I love how much he's just willing to get into these, like, King's Road-type brawls. And also, like, I can't think of another New Japan match in uh, the last couple years where this type of limb work has really paid off as clearly and cohesively as it did here. Um, So much of the time, you just, you know, see people kind of marking off time for 10 15 minutes with limb work and then it's like well we want to have the same really hype finishing sequence that we have every time so let's just kind of table that um but this time it worked out really well right um, cuz if i recall didn't shingo kick out of a death rider
0: yeah i be- the the he has like a he's like Naito where he has like a death rider and like a mini death rider which is like yeah. the, the leaping one i think he kicked out the leaping one yeah, but
1: I thought it was great for him to just say, like, okay, well, instead of just hitting you with, like, the full Death Rider at that time, like, I'm going to uh, have the legwork dive I've been doing all match pay off. And it's such a basic structural thing, but New Japan just falls down on that hurdle so often, right? And, you know, in the service of really fun, really cool matches, but it's so cool to see something paid off in a way that it's so often ignored. Uh, it yeah. was three and three quarters for me. I think that I was a little more taken out of it by that really bad dive, but still a very fun match.
0: I totally agree. Um, and I think like if it wasn't for that, like, that spot call at the, at the end, I think I would have gone even higher. Yeah. But um, after that, we got Jeff Cobb and Jay White. Uh, Jay White defeated Cobb in 1550 at the Blade Runner. That got him his first one in the tournament at this point. So he's one and three and Cobb fell to one and three. Um, I tried to be nice here. I went, I gave it three in hindsight. Mm-hmm. When I look back at, when I look back at my notes, I'm not even sure why I gave it three stars. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know. I, I guess I liked parts of it down the stretch after it was like very boring early, but then they got into that reversal, like overkill, which has been one of Jay White's big problems here. Mm-hmm. And Jeff caught at that point, like, he just looked WWE babyface levels of stupid, like tossing Gato back in the ring and like, slowly stalking him for like an hour until Jay White attacked him from behind. So yeah, I I, I was generous and gave it three stars, but I probably does not even deserve that. It wasn't very good.
1: Yeah, it was a a star and three quarters for me. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I mean, these are both guys who are super matchup dependent. Um, Jay White has had a really amazing match or two this tournament, but left to his own devices. He has no idea how to structure a match. Um, And Cobb is somebody who, again, has cool spots, but really needs someone to hold his hand because he has no idea how to, like, make those matter, how to string them together, and how not to just, like, uh, devolve into his worst tendencies. Um, So when you put them together, uh, it just ends up with, uh, we're going straight from an endless heat section into uh, a finishing sequence that, you know, is one of those like really embarrassing finisher counter waltzes. Um, And that's just one of the worst combinations you can have.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not good. (laughs) The best thing I can say is not good. Uh, But speaking of stuff that is good, the main event, see a Naito defeating Tomohiro Ishii in 1858 at the Destino that moves Naito up to two and two drops Ishii down to two and two. Um, this was fucking awesome. I mean, look, it's Naito and Ishii. I think it's pretty much. It's. I don't know if they ever had a bad match. I was trying to think of this. Like, what's their? What's the lowest they've ever rated one of their matches? I think I might have gone four and a quarter once. And that might be the, the lowest. I mean, if. They have a match that like is probably as important to me being like a solid New Japan fan, like that watches every show as anything, which is uh the never title match they had on the new I think New Beginning. It was the one right after Naito lost to Okada in 2014. Like that's a match that like cemented me as someone who's gonna watch New Japan all the time and be like a new Japan fan. So this yeah. is like, a very important feud to me personally. And I think they really came through here. Um, You know, not to be clear, not that I haven't watched New Japan before that, but it was like a match that made me consider myself someone that's going to watch every single New Japan show. Um, But yeah, I mean, like, this is a really, really awesome match. Um, You know, just like, I feel like they could have an awesome match in their sleep, you know, and they, but this is like a level above that. I, I heard some people say that critique, that like, it felt like, just a generic or Ishii match. I don't really agree. I think it felt a level above some of the other matches they've had. Um, you know, they, they there was a great... The thing that I really loved about the match is there was, like, a change-up to the pace. Like, they lulled you into a false sense of what the match page was going to be, and they, like, suddenly exploded, like, a super-fast exchange, and then just, like, went really, really quick for the rest of the match. Um, the crowd somehow, like, I, I think also elevated the match, where, like, they had been pretty dead for the rest of the rest of this card honestly but they really came alive here and you know obviously you have to give a lot of credit to the two guys in the ring for that especially with you know how slow the crowd was before that um but yeah i mean like i thought this was uh four and three quarters it was my match of the tournament uh up until this point but
1: mm-hmm.
0: just an absolutely incredible battle between two of the best in the world
1: yeah Same here. Uh, Also four and three quarters. Also my match of the tournament up until that point. Um, And I'm, you know, mostly just want to echo the stuff you said. And I think that a lot of why I could watch these two wrestle time and time again, whereas a lot of these other kind of, you know, stock matches lose their luster, is that they still feel like they're as pissed off at each other as the first time they wrestled, you know? Like, Ishii is somebody who is again a great wrestler all the time but he is elevated when you can feel that sort of personal animus coming off from him and just you know putting a little extra on every strike um kind of working the pace up a little faster uh and naito is somebody who is again perfectly calibrated to piss people like that off so i love their chemistry I love how, like you said, they can always kick it into another gear and uh, just suddenly be, you know, doing a sprint while still having several minutes left in the match. And they're just a joy to watch together.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, they, they are like a yin and a yang, you know? Like, they are just two such, like, opposing personalities. And they were always like that even... When before Naito was, uh, you know, L.I.J., like before he turned, even back then, it was just like, you know, Naito was sort of this like, I don't want to say pretty boy, even though he is a very pretty boy, but like he was a, you know, like a clean cut, like kind of like, you know, I'm the next top star kind of guy and ishii was like well i'm this fucking grumpy veteran that knows i'm never going to get the same opportunities as you but you know the crowd you know loves me more honestly and you know so they had that very uh, like opposite personalities and then naito goes and joins you know losin gobernables and completely changes his personality but still has a very opposite personality to ishii because now he's like well, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm, you know, Tranquilo. And Ishii is, you know, obviously not Tranquilo at all. So, you know, it works. It's like the one Naito feud that I think works just as well as it did pre and post-LIJ, whereas, like, the other feuds, you know, they have different dynamics to them. I think, like, they've really had a hard time finding the Naito-Okada dynamic post-LIJ versus pre-LIJ. Like, those are two very different dynamics. Absolutely. The Naito Ishii dynamic is still very similar.
1: Yeah, and I love that sense of like that that personal story between the two, with you know Naito very much having a chip on his shoulder regarding you know how he was treated when he was in the main event, and Ishii just getting even more pissed off at him in the sense of like, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't have a good crowd reception when you got all these
0: main event opportunities, (laughs) you little prick. I know It, it just works so well. But yeah, overall a I would call that a good show, not like a blow away or anything, but very like in my upper upper half for sure. Like I went it, the average star rating for that was about 3.65. Uh the the main event being so good and Cobb uh not Cobb, I'm sorry. Moxley yeah. and Shingo being really good as well both kind of elevate that show even though the other three matches weren't anything special
1: uh john as a fellow stats dork i hate to betray you here i have not calculated the average star ratings for each night so Mm -hmm. uh you're gonna be on your own delivering those after every show but yeah it was a good show uh Uh, one amazing match two really good ones and two really shitty matches but i would rather have you know those highs and lows than you know everything kind of just being in the middle
0: i agree so that's actually a good transition, though, to Night 9 Nagoya, where it kind of did feel like a lot of middling stuff. Although, I mean, there were two two matches I had at four, which is probably unfair to call middling on any objective scale. It's just we've gotten a little spoiled on the G1, you know, this year with stuff being better. So let's get into it. July 27th, the Aichi Perfectual Gymnasium in Nagoya, the first of two straight nights. Um it began with Kota Ibushi and Lance Archer. Kota defeating him in 11:42 with the Kamagoe to go to three and two. It dropped Archer to two and three. Um, I thought this was like a really fun sprint. I went four stars on it. Um, you know, there was just a really not not a ton to say about it, I guess. And that it just kind of was like all action. You know, Archer. You know, you, he's obviously been very good at keeping up with people like Ibushi in this tournament. He's been. He's a lot faster than I think people even expected going in. So that certainly helped him a lot here. Um, there was like a really cool spot, the one that stands up to me, where where Archer caught Ibushi and went for the blackout. But like, I can't tell what Ibushi was actually going for when he ran in. It almost looked like he was going for a running Destino, which I just kind of wanted to see him hit like a running Destino now. And a match has nothing to do with Naito. It's just kind of cool. But yeah, four stars for me. Really enjoyed this.
1: Yeah, um this was less good for me. Um I'm not a huge fan of Archer's tournament. Um in that like I think a big part of it for me is just that like one of these things that I'm sick of at this point is uh super heavyweights who are obsessed with moving like cruiserweights and there are so many little things that uh Archer does where it's like But you're good at being a hoss. You're good at just ragdolling people around a ring, you know? Why do I have to see a kind of slow and uh long to set up uh sent on to the outside? Why do I have to see, you know, your really long old school routine? Um and I think that he when he's with somebody who's really fast like Coda, he tries his best to keep up in that way. And I would much rather just see him be a big man who moves well and who can kind of catch you, counter you, toss you across the ring, plant you into the floor with a choke slam. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've been warming up on him throughout the tournament. And I think that this wasn't his worst match uh, by any strategy of imagination. But it didn't end up at three stars for me, uh, just because I think there was a little too much of that sense of... Uh, Lance trying to prove he can move like a cruiserweight.
0: Mm. I, I feel you. I mean, I I think I enjoyed him more than you have, but I understand that you know it's yeah. not gonna be everybody's thing. Um, so that brings us to Will Ospreay and Bad Luck Follet. Why do you go first on this one? Because I'm assuming you disliked it more than I did.
1: Listen, uh, this I think is my lowest rated match at a tournament. Uh, it is, a <laughs> bar. um, and it was, if I recall. Just a lot of very boring follow beatdowns, who is also somebody who I would like to see ragdolling people around a ring, but he doesn't even do that. He just has a bunch of, you know, kind of weak-looking strikes for somebody of his size. He stands on people, and he has two spots, right? Um, And it's such a shame because, like, I think that right now, especially... Being kind of tired of those, uh, you know, super heavyweights who are obsessed with speed and agility, I'm in the exact right place to appreciate a super heavyweight who just wants to throw people around. But Fale doesn't even really give you that. And this was a match where it, that type of nothing offense was in full effect. And then you know, Osprey hit one os cutter, which never looks good, and. Falei is not the type of person to make that setup look fluid. Um, and then uh, I don't remember how it finished,
0: unfortunately. So let me go through that, because it, it, the finish was, like, one of my favorite things about it, and sort of, like, saved oh, it. Oh, was this like the one where he got uh, where it got thrown yeah. out? So, Osprey won a 9 away right with the DQ, it moved him to 2-3, and three and dropped 5-1-4. to one and four. I like this better than the New Japan Cup match in some ways. Um, I just thought it was going a little bit better before the interference, like, kind of ground it to a halt, and I was getting so mad when Chase like pulled the ref out. I'm like, this has to be a DQ. Like, What are you even doing at this point? And Red Shoes runs out, he counts two, and then he flips off Folly and DQs him, which was a great finish, and I, I elevated I gave it two and a half stars, mostly because the finish was like just so satisfying after all this Folly interference crap. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't good, but mm-hmm. it I, wasn't quite as bad as i was expecting i guess
1: yeah i mean i i think that me leaving uh watching new japan a little after the end of last g1 and just coming back at this g1 definitely plays into how much i was sick of this in terms of you know uh i'm still living in the shadow right now of those uh really bad bullet club og matches from 2018 where uh you know Tama and Fale would get DQ'd every match with just the same <laughs> boring shtick. So, yeah. seeing another like DQ finish like that, even if there was that level of catharsis to it, uh, just did not do anything for me.
0: Yeah. I, I think this was the first DQ finish so far. It so, was. Yeah. So that helped probably. But, like, yeah, I could totally see why watching the two D ones back to back, that wouldn't help. <laughs> uh, e- Evil and Zach. Evil went up to three and two with a win here in 16 minutes with the evil. It dropped Zach to one and four, which is a little surprising. Um, This is a match where I I really want to rewatch it. I, I gave it three and a half. I thought it was good, but like, didn't really grab me, but I didn't write a lot of notes on it, which makes me think. Mm -hmm. since I was watching this match uh, in my hotel room at Otacon and people, you know, I was in like a room with seven people and people were coming and going and stuff that maybe I just got distracted or something. Yeah. Um, but it's not a match me- because it's not a match. I have a ton of memories on, so I'm gonna give it another shot at some point if I remember too. Um, I remember liking it and just thinking it was, you know, just not didn't quite get that next level for
1: me. I liked it. I think that um, Zach and uh, Evil have pretty good chemistry, uh, especially because two of the modes that Zach excels at are these kind of elaborate counter dances and uh, getting turned inside out uh, by a bigger guy. And Evil, as it happens, loves to do both of those. He loves to lay people out with lariats and he loves to do these very kind of like, you know, Serse 2013 finisher counter exchanges. So I think that they're a very good match. Um, I thought that they brought a lot of that fun big guy, little guy contrast to it. And um, I really enjoyed the the finishing sequence in this sort of, you know, like silly kind of uh, over elaborate um, way, but uh, I think there's very much a place for that, and I think that these two are uh, among the better people at delivering that type of uh, goofy spectacle.
0: And then the semi. Five... Was... Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it was uh, three and three quarters for me.
0: Okay, so we're pretty close, actually. I heard a lot of people said it was you know, had a lot higher than I did. So I was like, well, maybe I need to go back and rewatch it. I do think Evil has had a really good tournament, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about too with some other matches coming up. Uh, Tanahashi defeated Sonata in 1807 with the high Fly flow. A little bit surprising here because it dropped Sonata to one and four, which is two points, while Tanahashi was three and two at six. Um, this is a weird one. I, I I didn't hate it. I saw some people really hated it. I thought it was a... I really liked the middle, the middle of the match. And then I thought they had a really rough patch with the skull end reversals looking awkward and bad, as they sometimes do. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, some people, so Sonata haters would say they always do, but I would say, you know, more than usual. Um, but I still, they finished really strong. You know, I really liked the end of the match. So I put it up to three and three quarters. I can't justify going four, but I definitely didn't hate it or anything the way I saw some other people. Yeah.
1: Um, I think I'm a little closer to being one of those haters. Um, and this is a type of match where they... It felt like they were determined to go long without necessarily having any sense of we know everything that is going to fill out that time, right? So it lasted 18 minutes, which certainly isn't the longest match in this tournament, but it did feel like there were a lot of pretty dead sequences of either you know uh sonata having skull End half in or some you know pretty slow mat work and i think that this is if you're somebody who really hates sonata um then this is absolutely the sort of match that you point to to say that like he is not exciting he doesn't have a great sense of how to lift the crowd into things um but you know it wasn't horrible i didn't think uh i think it was let's see three and a quarter for
0: me. Yeah. So we're not even that far apart, but yeah. uh, pretty good, pretty good match. I just think it could have, I, I was expecting better. I think they have, they, they had a better match in the new Japan cup and they probably have a better match in them. Uh, main event, two undefeated wrestlers entering here. Okada stays undefeated, beats Kenta in 26, 53 at the Rainmaker to go to five and zero, while Kenta loses here to go to four and one. This was really good. I think There were parts that I found very boring, so that I have to say that first of all, Uh, parts I didn't really love. But in the last like 15 minutes, I thought it got really good, and Kenta really brought the physicality. um, You know, especially with like the the double stop to the like to a draped okada on the floor, that was like a really really cool spot. The kicks in general just it it reminded me almost like echoes of Okada Shibata, obviously nowhere near as good, but. You know, mm-hmm. that same kind of... I just don't think Okada's had, like, an opponent or a rival that brings the physicality the way Kenta did here. Um, I I do think they have a better match in them someday. I think, you know, Kenta's still kind of working out how to be effective in the New Japan style, and I think they probably do have a better match in them. But I still went four-stars flat in this. I still liked it a lot, but I think they probably will have a better match someday.
1: Yeah, I think I liked it uh, just a hair less. I went three and three quarters, um... And I did feel at times like it was the type of match that deserved over four. Um, But I think that when you have a 27-minute match like that, then there better be a very good reason for it. And I think that a lot of Okada's longer matches are ones where he just kind of disappears into the match for long stretches and lets his opponent do their thing um which can be fun it's always good as like a showcase i was actually watching this with somebody who um you know is pretty new to wrestling had only seen a small handful of matches before and she was immediately sold on kenta as a uh you know as a real killer as a total badass but um you know despite like while okada was coming out uh you know she like noted his facial expression and was like oh i love this smug asshole like she did not have anything to say about him after the match. And I think that that is kind of the unfortunate tendency that Okada gets tied up in, right? Of, I am just going to let my opponent drive this match and, you know, get essentially a 15-minute heat section on me, and then I'll start to kick it up and, you know, do my fun drop kicks and my fun reversal sequences. So I think that if they had to work something tighter... Then they could easily have a very good match, but it felt like it was missing that uh, extra spark for me. As fun as it was to see Ken to just lay into someone,
0: yeah, no, I hear you. So overall, a decent show, not one that's going to be in the top tier or anything. I had an average rating of three point five five on this on this show, which you know will be towards the towards the bottom, I believe. I'm going to do the whole ranking at the end, so we'll know able to give the entire ranking but you know i think any any show we have two four star matches isn't, isn't bad or anything It just compared to other g1 nights isn't as good so that then brings us to the b block show uh from nagoya night number 10 which you know was kind of another show that was a very hit or miss show as we'll go into here this took place on july 28th on sunday um it opened up. First of all, I should say I was I was spoiled on the main event. I didn't stay away from the results uh, while I was at Oticon that day, and I didn't I didn't watch the show until my train ride home, which was interesting to to know what was going to happen in the main event because obviously it was a big stunner to everybody, and uh, you know it kind of looks like things are playing out in a certain way now. And I guess we'll get into that when we talk about the the G1 as a whole at the end, and you know the the coming week. But yeah, at the time, obviously, the result here was a big stunner, and you know, I think, you uh, know, v- obviously, very much surprised people. Uh, the show opened up with Hiroki Goto defeating Toriano in one forty-two with a Goto style roll-up. I actually love that Goto roll-up that he did—the the cross legs moved uh, right. Goto to two and three and dropped Yano to two and three. Uh, yeah, this is really fun. I I mean, look, they do these matches every year where they they they're really really short. And one of my favorite parts of it was the crowd just, like, laughing at the match time at the end. Uh, but I went two and a half. I probably could have gone higher. But yeah. I can't see going that much higher in a match that so doesn't go two minutes. But it was fun. I enjoyed the minute and 42 seconds that it lasted. Go Like, Yano encouraging Goto to do a uh, a chaos chant and then just, just pull the shirt over his head and try to pin him. That was just awesome.
1: Yeah, I... I thought that um, Goto, as a straight man who really has Yano's number, is one of the best uses for him in this tournament. Um, I loved that elaborate roll up pinning combination finish that he had. And, you know, I do think that the running joke of Goto just taking next to no time to put Yano away every time is really funny. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I. I think that we're both of a same mind of like what the contents of this match actually are. I think I just am more inclined to give a higher star rating, three and a half in this case, to an effort that is really short, is really simple, but that left a really big smile on my face.
0: And then the next match was here Ishii defeating Juice Robinson in 1754 with the vertical drop Brain Buster. Ishii went to three and two and Juice dropped to three and two. Um, this one was awesome. I it took a little bit to go, to really grab me on a higher level. I wasn't feeling it early, but once it got going, I thought it was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, it had maybe my favorite counter of the entire year, which is when Ishii countered the pulp friction into the into that tiger suplex. Which is it's one of those counters that's like made it even more impressive by the fact that like when the fuck does me how Ishii ever do tiger suplexes, you know? Yeah. it's just like Feels so natural when he just like catches him and like hooks those arms and hits it. It was just such a great counter, uh, but yeah, I t- thought it was like an incredible match. Four and a half stars, uh, really awesome. You know, obviously Ishii's having an awesome tournament, but this was still one of his better matches. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I didn't like this as much as everyone else did. Um, I still thought it was quite a good match. I went three and three quarters, um, so super enjoyed it. But I was actually surprised to hear you say that you. Um, thought took a little while to go in because I thought that opening where it was just a series of very fast very fired up strike exchanges was the best part of the match I thought that after they kind of wound out of steam from that section it um kind of went down a notch into what was still a very good match but that felt in a way like it could be anybody's match Um, and I love how uh, Juice has really taken up that mantle of one of these, like, very fast, aggressive brawlers uh, during this tournament. So, like, for example, uh, his match with Shingo is one of my favorites of the whole tournament. So to see them kind of move away from that a little into, you know, this more standard territory of, okay, well, let's put you up on the top rope and set you up for a superplex, um, that's still very fun, but it did feel a little more anonymous as it wore on, so... Uh, Still a very good match. Uh, I don't really have, you know, much actual deep criticism of it, but I was hoping for a little more. And I think that if they play into just more of that, you know, never open weight style, if you want to call it that, and just uh, have it be like a very sort of intense strike off, then I think both of them are super well suited to bring that to life.
0: Next match was Jeff Cobb beating Chi in 1230 with the Tour of the Islands that moved Cobb to two and three and dropped Taichi to two and three. Uh, this is one where, again, I saw like a consensus that this was like not a very good match, which uh, I very much disagreed with. I wasn't sure where that came from. I thought it was probably the second best Cobb match behind the Ishii match.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I thought he really played like him playing like the powerhouse role here. Really, like it really worked. I thought the, the match was structured really well around that. You know, I thought there was like the, the shenanigans at the start were at least entertaining shenanigans. I know some people don't want shenanigans at all, but I thought it was entertaining. And then once they got in the ring, you know, I thought there was a bunch of really cool spots, like Cobb turning Tai Chi, like trying to lift him for the black new fisto into like like straight into that really sick pile driver. That was a really awesome spot. Um, I just thought like the entire match with like Tai Chi trying to outsmart this big this big strong dude and like Cobb, you know, was just throwing him around every time he got his hands on him. I thought really played into Cobb's strengths in a way that very few matches in this tournament so far have played into Jeff Cobb's strengths. Uh so I thought this was really good. I went 3 and 3 quarters. Just yeah. below four stars for me.
1: Um yeah, I went 2 and 3 quarters. Uh but that is still well above my average rating for Jeff Cobb. So I agree that it's, you know, one of the better uses of his talents such as they are. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that Tai Chi is really fun to have in that role where he wants to be the, uh, you know, hard striker who's going toe-to-toe with you and doing all his uh, really stiff kicks, but, you know, is just getting really out-muscled by a heroic baby face, so he has to resort to more of the shenanigans. Um But I still think that with these kinds of matches, like the crowd is almost never invested in Jeff Cobb unless he, you know, is in the middle of one of his most showy spots. Um, And it felt like it was just, um, you know, not the best use of Tai Chi's talents.
0: Uh, The semifinal, Jay White defeating Shingo Takagi in 1926 with the Blade Runner moved White to two and three and dropped Shingo to two and three. Uh this was pretty not very good. Um <laughs> I just remember noting fifteen minutes into the match, just it, at the 15 minute call, you know, sometimes it feels like, oh how'd they get to 15 minutes already? This one it was like it felt like it was 15 hours. Like yeah. it was just so fucking boring. Um there was like a at one point Jay White countered the sliding Lariat like into the Blade Runner attempt which felt stupid and convoluted even on his sliding scale. Of mm-hmm. stupid and convoluted. Um, it picked up a little bit after that, but then we got another really terrible looking counter uh, the Blade Runner into the Last of the Dragon. It was so bad. Jay White has to stop these fucking counters. He's like out of control in this tournament. Um, I don't know. It was like I went two and a quarter, bored me to tears. Uh, and then even the parts that started feeling good and started feeling really good, even were marred by like these really terrible Blade Runner reversal spots that like Jay. It's, they, pretty much that's all Jay White has brought to the table in this tournament is, you know, Blade Runner, convoluted Blade Runner reversals and, you know, Gato interference. So that's was like, this match is going to drag down Shingo's average because I thought it was even worse than a lot of J. White matches, but ugh. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I like this a little more than you
1: did um, in large part because I haven't seen Shingo wrestle in years. And, um, you know, mid-late 2000s, Dragon Gate was one of the very first things that I watched in wrestling. And one of the things that really cemented my love for, uh, you know, wrestling as a, as an art form, but uh, I am still going to like pop for any of Shingo's offense at this point. So it was two and three quarters for me, but I absolutely agree with your criticisms of Jay White and, I think this was the match where a lot of why I've been disliking his tournament so much really clicked for me, Uh, despite loving his character work still. I think that he does a great job at, you know, being this, I think I'm the total mastermind and I am going to get my shit kicked in because I'm not as clever and ruthless and evil as I think I am. Um, But the way that I put it on Twitter, twitter was uh i empathize a lot with jay white because when i was a backyarder i also had a million dumb fucking creator wrestler moves that didn't add up to any kind of recognizable style (laughs) that's that's where jay is right like he needs so desperately to get his shit in and if you are this like very canny crafty kind of you know cowardly heel who relies on you know outsmarting people and using dirty tactics, then why do you have a snap uh flatliner into a deadlift German suplex? Why do you have a series of rolling half and half suplexes that end with one into the turnbuckle? Why do you have all these really kind of elaborate uh, cool indie guy spots when what you're using them for most of the time is to continue to drag out a really long heat section. So, like I said, he has no idea how to structure a match, and um, that really does end up manifesting a lot of the time in him just being in control for the majority of a match as a heel, but not having any sense of what to do with that besides just, well, I'm going to do another move to you. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Yeah, I am grateful for this match for crystallizing very clearly why I am not feeling Jay White at all. But other than that, it wasn't very good.
0: And it stands out in like a sore thumb, given how fucking great Shingo's whole tournament has been. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the main event, John Moxley defeating Tetsuya Naito, obviously a big shocker here. Move Moxley to 5-0 and and drop Naito to 2-3. and I think in hindsight, what we can say is, we all looked at this as like, oh, what the fuck is going on? Naito has to win this. If Naito goes on to win the G1, this is going to be the match where I'm like, oh, Naito had to lose this match because he needs briefcase defenses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before this, he had lost to Yano and Taichi, two people who, you know, Yano, I don't think is going to get a briefcase shot at all. Taichi probably will, but like maybe on destruction or something. So if you need a really big briefcase defense for King of Pro Wrestling or Power Struggle, you know, obviously here's here's your guy now. This is like a really big match to do that match again. Yeah. Um you know, maybe he still won't win, but I, but but I think people read in hindsight now read too much into Moxie winning this as like a negative where you know he could just go on a big losing streak and Nights are go on a big winning streak and still win, which I sort of feel like is what's gonna happen. At least he's gonna win the block. I mean he, he maybe still won't, maybe Jay White will break everybody's hearts in the in the, the B block final, but this match isn't gonna be the reason why, you know, he won't lost the block. As far as the match itself, I thought it was fucking awesome. Um, beginning right with Naito, like, taking 10 years to take his clothes off and John Moxley just, like, not everybody can do the reaction to that great, but Moxley is, like, getting more and more angry and just, like, just getting more and more pissed off is great. And then Naito, like, throws the pants right at him, which is such a great spot. Um, there's this great running dropkick down the ramp, which, you know, I would like all the uh naito is actually paralyzed truthers out there because there's a lot of them now and yo he's not- explain that to me
1: the- so okay
0: so people think that naito can barely move which i don't think makes any fucking sense if you watch him wrestle like i i understand sometimes where people are like oh a guy's hurting oh he can't really do it anymore Tetsuya and naito's matches are like super fucking fast like, yeah where it's like, if his knees are completely gone, his neck's completely gone, like, you'd expect that to show up somewhere. I don't, like, even if you think Naito's not as good as I do, which I understand, not everybody loves him like I do. Like, objectively, I don't understand this viewpoint that, like, he's broken down now and can't go anymore. Like, it's it's not supported at all in any of his matches. He runs very quickly. Like, he, he moves very quickly. So, I don't know. It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. But that that's out there. Dave Meltzer's pushed a lot this year and other people have been pushing it on Twitter. And I'm just like, I don't understand. Um, now, right after I tweeted that, he took out this ridiculous bump right on his neck. Off the headlock driver from Moxley that, like, could have paralyzed him. So, I understand where, I guess, people think he must be, you know, broken down. Because the fucking bumps he takes in these matches. I just think he's one of these You know, he's just, he's like, some people are just freaks, you know? Like, some people take a a lot of punishment, and clearly that's Naito. Um, But, yeah, I thought this was four and a half stars. uh, Amazing character work by both guys. um, Really nuts bumping by Naito all over the place. And, you know, Moxley, I thought, held up his end very well, even though there were some points where it felt like Naito, like, could have been bumping for... You know, Yoshihiko or something, you know, like it definitely was. I, it wasn't a one man performance per se, but it definitely he was. He had more to do with this yeah. match being standing. Um, but I was glad I was spoiled on the results. So I could get mad at the end because <laughs> that probably didn't help. But yeah, there you
1: go. I, I really enjoyed it, too. Um, four and a quarter uh, for me. So I think, you know, effectively the same. Uh, And I do think that, like you mentioned, this is a match where the character work was a little more important than the ring work. Um, And one kind of little mini storyline that I have loved in this tournament so far is uh, Moxley's attitudes towards clownishness. Because, you know, with that uh, very famous shoot interview that he gave or, you know, he made it clear that he was so done being this, you know, kind of goofy, loony comedy guy for WWE whenever there is a wrestler who kind of embodies any type of comedic spirit or even just, you know, uh, being able to, uh, like Naito does, just fuck with people, then it pisses Moxley off so much. And I thought that that, you know, uh, that opening sequence before the match of uh, taking a million minutes to, you know, take uh, all his clothes off and then firing them at Moxley was fantastic. Um, and I think that really informed a lot of, you know, the the passion that Moxley brought to the rest of the match. So um, I love when there can be kind of a narrative through line to a G1 like that. It has felt like for several people this year, there isn't anything close to one. And I do think that this sense of like uh, Moxley wanting to establish himself as this absolute killer as this person who is not defined by you know the the wacky lion era of Dean Ambrose, uh, and who is lashing out at anyone who reminds him in any way of that type of goofy persona, that's been one of my favorite narrative through lines at a tournament.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's he's he's done a great job establishing like a very distinct New Japan character, and he even feels distinct from what he's done in AEW so far to me too. Yeah, so I think that. So, I mean, I, not to, you know, I'm a, I obviously have my preference of the two promotions, but he's just so much more interesting to me in New Japan than AEW so far, and we'll see if that continues or not, but I just feel like his New Japan persona is just so much more entertaining. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot more, there's been a lot more of it, too, versus AEW, so. Mm-hmm. Then we get to July 30th on Tuesday. Uh, oh, I should mention the average for this show was at 3.5, which... Was lower than it's one of those things where like numbers can deceive you, I think. Cause I would have put this as a higher, you know, a higher tournament night maybe than the average would even say. Like I enjoyed this night a lot. But because I had two of the matches so far down, you know, two and a half and two and a quarter, it's dragging down the average, even though, you know, I thought two matches were awesome. Uh, and- I liked Pop and Tai Chi as well, but the other two matches, I guess, were just So you know, so drag him at average down.
1: This is why you always make sure to give high star ratings to Toru matches. Then you won't have that
0: problem. Exactly. Uh, Night 11, Takamatsu, uh, not a night I enjoyed. This was back on Tuesday, July 30th. Uh, I would say this was, you know, the first,
1: or sorry, worst night.
0: Yes. The the first, I would say the first flat out bad night in the G1 and definitely the worst night. Um, but it opened up with Kota Ibushi and Bad Luck Fale. Ibushi defeating Fale in nine twenty-seven with the Goe to move to four and two, and drop Fale to one and five. Um, I think this is my worst match of the tournament. It's definitely the. It's either this or Okada Fale. Um, it, it's close. I gave him the same rating. Um, this was definitely, I think, the most boring. I mean, look, Kota Kota took this as a night off, which God bless the guy. He, if anyone deserves a night off, it's probably him. Oh yeah. But. He didn't even do anything. And Fale was left to carry the match, which you can imagine how well that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crowd was completely dead. It was like a long a long chin lock, light stomping, extended bear hug. It was like a nineteen eighty six WWF house show match. Um, and then, you know, just when I thought I couldn't get any worse, there was a spot where Koda Ibushi got stuck. Basically got distracted for seemingly hours staring at Chase Owens in the corner so Folly could do, like, a weak charge. Uh, really terrible. They they really should have loved the finish just being Marty Assami, like, kicking Folly's hands off the crucifix, you know, off the ropes into that crucifix hole because that would have at least been a funny finish, but, you know, yeah. couldn't have that to redeem it. Instead, we had just a really, really... A terrible match. I only want one star on it. And that, even that, I think is generous.
1: Yeah. I think it was a star and a quarter for me just because the uh, Marty Asami's running flying kick is one of the funniest moments. <laughs> like, but it says something that, like, I can remember exactly one moment from this match. All the spots that you mentioned there were like, oh, yeah, I guess that did happen. But the one that I could tell you about was Marty Asami doing his flying push kick and um yeah that kind of is representative of where the where this match ended up it was a star and a quarter for me um not good at all but like you said you know god bless coda if anybody deserves to take a night off then it is him and um using Fale as your night off rather than trying to you know wring a good match from him somehow that's probably your best bet i think only one person has gotten a good match out of him all tournament. Um, and uh, you're not likely to join that club.
0: Then we had Zach Sabre Jr. and Will Ospreay, with Zach beating Osprey in 2002 with his wacky submission with a long name I'm not going to read. Uh, moved into two and four with four points and dropped Osprey to two and four. Um, okay. So this was one of those matches where. It really felt like I was watching a different match than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got universal acclaim for the most part where, you know, I saw people go as high as like four and a half. I just don't understand it at all. Um, I just didn't care for this match at all. Began with that like two choreographed like mat wrestling sequences that Zach used to do a lot in New Japan when he first came. I feel like he's gotten away from it, you know, in recent in recent like months, in the past like year or so, for the most part, which is good because this stuff really annoys me. Um, and then we settled into like a really boring period that I, I don't really understand how people enjoyed this part of the match, but like it felt like Zach was occasionally working on his neck, which makes sense since Offway has like a neck injury. But also featured like a lot of boring downtime with with Zach just like standing there, like for. You know, like, full seconds just, like, standing there and doing nothing. I'm just like, what is entertaining about this? Um, you know, I just kept waiting for us to pick up and get good. But we got past the 10-minute mark without any real signs of it. Just, like, all those New Japan matches people say are, you know, have a boring 10 minutes out of 30. Like, this had a really boring 10 minutes out of 20, which is half a fucking match, you know? Yeah. So it's even worse. Um, you know, there was finally some nice striking by Zach. Would then kind of devolved into, like, a really silly-looking strike exchange where nothing looked like it landed. Um, The only cool spot the entire match probably was Zach turning the odds cutter into a choke. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. Like, they finally got the crowd to wake up and make some noise after they slept through most of it. So I guess I give them credit for that. But, like, maybe a minute after I finally found it interesting, um, Zach won. So I don't know. I mean, I went two and three quarters, which... I feel like, is even generous, given what I just said. Um, but a lot of the people thought it was way better. So, you know, I have to accept that I was the outlier in this one. I just I just don't get it. I just didn't <laughs> enjoy the match at all. And it's not like I haven't gotten, given high marks to other matches of both guys in this tournament. But, I mean, I think Zach's had a pretty disappointing tournament, but Osprey had a pretty good one overall. I just didn't think this was one of them.
1: Yeah, um, I thought that it was a little better than you did. I went three and a quarter on it. And I think that largely comes down to, um, I have more of a tolerance and honestly more of a preference for that kind of like very uh, elaborate mat work. Um, I just think it's fun to see people like, you know, twist and flip around a whole bunch in a way that's a little more grounded than some of the, you know, Osprey high spots. Um, But other than that, yeah, I had no idea what they were going for with that extended middle sequence. Um, I think that there is this real sense on Osprey's part in this tournament of wanting to come across as a more mature wrestler. And so much of the time, he unfortunately interprets that as I'm just going to have these really long selling sections where nothing much happens, Um, which is a shame because like we all know that he can do really fun high spots. And if he's got the right partner, then they can bounce off each other really well. But for him to confuse maturity with let's pad this match out for 10 minutes longer than it needs to go is very disappointing.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Next match, Okada beating Lance Archer in 14-15 with the Rainmaker. Moves him to six now and drops Archer to two and four. Kind of thought there was a chance of the upset here. I thought maybe Archer could win and do a title match for the American tour at the end of September. But, you know, fighting spirit up But obviously they disagreed and they decided to keep Okada undefeated for this amount of match. Um, okay, here's what I will say about this one. I thought it was good. I went three and a half. I thought it could have been great if they hit a few spots cleaner and had a better crowd. Uh, there were like a couple spots that I thought looked really awkward. I mean, that backslide into the short arm rainmaker Okada does—it looks really awkward on a good day, and here it looked even worse because he like he had the wrong arm at first, so like they had to like stop right in the middle of it and looked so fucking bad. Uh, I mean, I would honestly tell him to just retire that spot if he could because it never looks great. Um, you know, the best it ever looked was probably the first time he did it against Sonata in the New Japan Cup final but most of the time it looks really bad. So, and here it looked even worse because they pretty much botched it. Um, But there was like a really cool spot where Archer, that I want to say on the good side of things, where Archer countered a Rainmaker just into his own short-arm lariat, which logically that should probably happen a lot more often. I mean, it seems like a really obvious counter for the Rainmaker, but it just never, you know, it's happened twice now in this G1, but it seems like it very rarely happens otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, three and a half. I went on this. It was good. Just never quite got to great for me.
1: Yeah, I went to uh, two and a half on this um, because I think that it really played into their both at our worst instincts. And one thing about Okada that kind of uh, grinds my gears a little bit at this stage of his career is how much he prioritizes having these like big, elaborate spots. And he can make them work so less often than he attempts them. Uh, So like you said, the, you know, backslide into a uh, short arm Rainmaker, uh, it's not a good spot. It's certainly not a good spot to attempt with somebody whose frame is probably a little too big and difficult for you to manage into that type of uh, very precise sequence. Um, And I actually... You know, like, I've been typically pretty hard on Lance Archer throughout this series, but I would actually lay a little bit more of the blame uh, for why I didn't like this match on
0: Okada's feet. Uh, then the semifinal, Sonata beating Kenta in 16-10 with the rounding body press. Like, that's a moonsault. Why do they call it that? <laughs> to go to two and four. Well, I think that's the- they called it before
1: because um, uh, it's, it's a moonsault after uh, Mudo, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that him just, uh, if you remember, like when he first came back to Japan after a stint in TNA, Muda was super pissed off about uh, him uh, having used the, you know, great Sonata gimmick over there, Um, which, you know, I think that wasn't necessarily Sonata's fault. He was put in a situation by a pretty shitty American company. But I think that as kind of a gesture to be like, well, I was mentored by Amuto. He means a lot to me, but I am not going to try to, you know, kind of disrespect his name or take his gimmick for my own. Um, I think that's a big part of why it's called the Rounding Body Press, which is a really weird name, but that is my
0: uh, guess at why they call it that. But he defeated Kenta, so Kenta drops to 4-2 and here, second straight loss. Um, This was the kind of match where I don't know what to say about it. It was aggressively fine. Uh, It it was a little better than that, maybe, even with one major botch, uh, which was the when Kinto went for the Busiaku knee. And, you know, they I, I don't know what they were going for, but clearly the counter was not supposed to be awkwardly dropped down into a sort of but <laughs> not really guard and do nothing. So I gave it three stars, which is probably even generous. Um, it's But, like, I just, you know, yeah. there wasn't much to it, and it wasn't awful either other than that one awful spot. So... You know, three stars. It was fine. Yeah, it was
1: three stars for me as well. And um, I think I brought this up uh, last time I was on his podcast last year, but I do think that uh, Sonata really missed his calling as a comedy wrestler. Um, and I think this is one of the best matches to illustrate that unfortunate truth with, you know, he doesn't really bring a whole lot to the table against somebody whose whole persona is being a hard-nosed striker like Kenta, Um he doesn't do good strike exchanges. He's not fast enough to really do a sort of fast guy, slow guy dichotomy. Um, and it's just kind of there, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Then the main event, which saved the show from being a complete disaster Tanahashi defeating Evil in 23.02 with the high fly, high fly flow, uh, moves him to four and two, eight points, drops Evil to three and three. Uh, this was awesome. It was, you know, there were some really cool spots early on, like Evil hitting him with a German right after Tanahashi skinned the cat, which was, like, w- really, really cool spot. Uh, There's also, like, an assisted magic killer with using a young boy on the floor, which was great. Um, the crowd was so into this, especially compared to the rest of the show. Uh, there was a really great strike exchange. And, you know, by the end of it, I just thought it was an awesome match. Four and a quarter. Really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Uh, I, at the time, gave it three and a half,
1: but I think that I can probably adjust that up to maybe like three and three quarters. Um, For me, I think that the last, let's say five minutes or so, were fantastic, great energy. Um, You know, like you said, it really got the crowd into it after them kind of being nowhere for the whole show, understandably so. But um, I feel like it just took a little too long for them to get there. And I think that they wrestled kind of like with the clear understanding that like look we know we're going over 20 and we know that we both are really into these elaborate finishing sequences so let's just kind of pace ourselves for that which you know is a very understandable thing to do um and I don't blame them for making that decision but it did mean that there were uh you know maybe about like 10-15 minutes of this match where I was kind of in that when are they going to get to the fireworks factory mindset
0: yeah, no, I hear you, but overall, you know, over very weak night of the G one. Even even with me having that match higher than you, yeah, still even it's still a two point nine average. By far, the worst show of the G one
1: for sure.
0: Uh, night twelve was from Fukuoka, uh, sort of another mixed bag of a show, but at least did have two. You know, the the lows weren't quite as low for me, and I had two four star matches. So it wasn't awful or anything, but it definitely felt like we were in the dog days of the tournament here. Uh, This took place Thursday, August 1st in Fukuoka, the Citizen Gymnasium. Uh, It opened up with Jeff Cobb defeating Shingo Takagi in 12 27 with the Tour of the Islands uh, that moved Cobb to three and three and dropped Shingo to two and four. This was a pretty good match, especially on the, you know, sadly the Cobb scale, which you know (laughs) he's one of my weaker wrestlers in this tournament. Um, I went three and a half on it. I enjoyed it. You know, it definitely could have been better, but you know, um, they there's like one spot by Cobb that has annoyed me because he does it over and over again. He starts like backwards to take the lariat bump Mm -hmm. before. I actually makes contact with him at all and it's like look if this is again not I know people hate when I make these comparisons but this is fucking WWE where they are changing the camera 10,000 times anyway and nothing really makes contact half the time anyway maybe you can get away with that but this is like New Japan for wrestling they are hitting each other you cannot get it and the camera stays like in one static position because they know these people are making contact with each other so like you can't get away with doing that it just looks incredibly fake you have to fucking wait until the guy makes contact before you take the bump. So, I don't know. I I, I can't believe he's, still, he, he's done that throughout the entire tournament, and, like, somebody needs to take him aside and tell him, Jeff, you can't start jumping before the guy makes contact. It looks fucking stupid. So, anyway, um, Shingo hit... I, the only thing that was really impressive was Shingo hitting the Maiden Japan on him, you know, despite being such a big dude. I mean, he's done it on other big dudes before in, like, all Japan stuff, so I guess it's not that impressive, but... It was still impressive. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Oh, it was impressive <laughs> to see a really big guy take a power move.
0: Yeah. Um, it had a really hot little closing stretch, which, you know, got it up to three and a half for me, but never really flirted with great for me. So there you yeah. go. Um, it was also
1: one of my better Cobb matches, but uh, I just really have not liked Cobb's tournament whatsoever. So that still means that it was three stars for me. Um and I do think that you're absolutely right about how Cobb is super awkward between his spots and going into his spots. Um, he very much looks like, uh, you know, I think the best comparison to draw for him is this sort of archetypal, uh, very talented guy in uh, from another medium, uh, like somebody who has done MMA and obviously he had his whole amateur career, uh, but somebody who hasn't yet adjusted to pro wrestling which is wild because he's been pro wrestling for several years now. Um, But it always just feels like he's still trying to get the ropes down of, you know, really uh, making spots look natural, uh, transitioning from one spot to another. And at this point, I don't know if he's ever going to develop past that uh, real handicap of his.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just not, he, he might just not be that good at it. I don't know. I mean, he had some really good matches in Ring of Honor, actually, like especially, but now in hindsight, I'm wondering, like, did, was this really four or four and a quarter, or does it just feel like that because the rest of this Ring of Honor show is so bad? But who knows? Uh, anyway, the next match, Toriano and John Moxley. Yano defeating Moxley in 508 by countout, moving him to 3-3 three and three and giving Moxley's first loss, so he's now 5-1. and one. Um, so I was forward on the next two matches. I could not wait all day at work to find out if they were just gonna go lose their minds, eliminate Naito so early here. So I just asked somebody, "Is Naito still alive?" and didn't get any details until they, yes, he's still alive. So obviously, I knew Moxley had to lose this, and Naito had to win the next one. But the way Moxley loses was still amazing, with Yano tying him to Shoto Umino, literally using his affection for this young boy against him. Incredible, because like yeah, Moxley. If he had just like, I don't know, like just I don't know knocked the guy unconscious or like pounded on the fucking thing, but like he actually tried to unwrap it and like yeah. try to get it off and like just you know d- delicately as delicately as John Moxley's is gonna do anything, and then actually tried to like stagger towards the ring with him, which was just a great visual, but no he d- he couldn't make it, and he got counted out, so um yeah, this was a quite the spectacle. I gave it three and a quarter. Um, it was really, really fun match.
1: Look, here's the thing: you said so many wonderful things about this match, uh, and the other matches that you've given three and a quarter to. You've said, "Yeah, this is just kind of there for me." Uh, it did do a whole lot, um, but uh, what's up with that? What's up with this anti-Yano
0: slander you've got going on? <laughs> it was a, it was three and a quarter. Feels like the ceiling for a five-minute match. I can. But maybe that's just my biases for longer matches.
1: Oh, but. absolutely, I disagree on there. Like a match going longer at this point lowers its star rating to me. And uh, I, you know, I can think of several sprints. Like okay, um, the two-minute match between uh, Hiromu and Kushida for the title at Sakura Genesis a couple of years ago. What did you give that?
0: I don't. I don't remember. Five stars. Okay. <laughs> okay.
1: But the point is uh talking about the actual moxleyano match um i thought it was the funniest match of this whole tournament um i was so glad to see yano bring out more unique comedic setups because it did feel like for the first half of this tournament he had kind of maybe run a little dry with those for the time being um he needed maybe a bit of time to recoup um and kind of go back to it as well but i thought this match was incredible And I thought that it played so well into that storyline of Moxley just not wanting to be the clown, wanting to be this like really tough, angry shooter, um, but just being dragged down with Yano into the pit of, you know, comedic silliness. Um, And I thought that, like you said, using his affection for Shoto against him and Moxley just desperately trying to do like a three-man uh, or three-legged race sock hop into the ring um, and not getting nearly close enough is just such an amazing visual. So uh, huge, huge fun. Uh, one of my favorite matches of the tournament, four and a half stars. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, I can't, I can't fault you for your, I guess you're more uh, honest star rating. I don't know. I just can't. Like I try to be like, you know, three and a quarter here can be a success.
1: Three and yeah. a quarter here can
0: be a failure. And three and a quarter here, to me, was a, a success. But yeah. it just kept, I just feel like it has a ceiling on it.
1: It's really simple. When a match makes me really happy, it gets a really high star rating.
0: That's all. Okay. Up next, Tetsuya Naito defeated Juice Robinson in 1347 with the Destino. Uh, this was a hard one to rate for me. Because on one hand, um, like, I thought the character stuff was amazing. I mean, oh, Juice... Yeah. Juice had all of his mini t-shirts when he was doing the long stripping and Naito starting to get annoyed finally. Um, but then Naito f- makes fun of like his, his uh, he kept making fun of his Juice punch pose, you know, the arm thing he, he stole from Moose. And <laughs> that was really funny. Um, and then Juice paid him back by making fun of the Tranquilo pose, which was also really funny. So that was really cool. Unfortunately, the match had a couple major botches. Um, You know, there was, like, a spinning DDT on the floor that was really botched. Um, They kind of made up for that with, like, some really cool drop kicks. Then there was, like, another awkward spot where they fell off the top rope too early and had to just kind of awkwardly get back up there. Um, But then after that, there was, like, you know, this really cool, like, uh, front flip DDT thing from Naito that he doesn't – I've never really seen him do before. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. I went four stars flat. I thought that was about – That was, like, the highest I could go, given the major botches and some of the other awkwardness to it. But, like, this was, like, as good of a match with gigantic flaws as you could have, I think.
1: I feel you. Um, I went a little higher on it. I went four and a quarter. And I think a big part of the reason that the botches uh, sat a little better with me... First off, um, just full disclosure, there's no use to answer on this. Because I really like Tetsuya Naito, and I'm inclined to give his matches good star ratings. Right. I think everybody thought about me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, I think that the reason that I didn't really mind those in this context um, is because there are two types of botches, and one is when it looks like somebody tried to uh, to to carry out a legitimate attack and just didn't get it, wasn't able to. And the other is when it looks like two people tried to plan something and the thing that they planned failed. And both of the botches here felt like they were more in that former category to me. So when he does that tornado DDT off the uh, apron uh, on the outside and he just can't actually uh, drive juice down at a low enough angle to hit a real DDT... That is the type of botch that, like, yeah, it's still a botch. It still certainly impacts my perception of the match. But it is so much more forgivable to me than the one that kind of really exposes the business in terms of, you know, uh, two people tried to choreograph something. It didn't work. And then the worst of all is when they go back to the same spot um, and try to carry out the exact same thing as if it never happened. Um, as, as in Kenny
0: Omega be... versus Chris Jericho at Double or Nothing. What's up? <laughs> I said, as in Kenny Omega versus Chris Jericho at Double or Nothing.
1: Oh my God! Was... I've never watched an AEW match, yeah. um, and so I that...
0: suspect somehow that I never will. <laughs> but yes, that was like the most the, the most recent, like egregious example of like they completely bossed the spot and then went back and did the exact same spot. I believe it was like a One Ringed Angel reversal where like they just fell down and then like Kenny like picked him back up and went for the one woman angel again. So Jericho could do the reversal that they clearly had just botched. And it's like, well, if this was real, why would that happen? Like, why would you, you know, lift the guy back up in the exact same way? So the guy could go for the exact same, like it didn't make any fucking sense. Or yeah. at least with here, they did not repeat the spot in either case. Like, I guess they went back on the top rope, but they yeah,
1: didn't. That's just such a broader category, you know, like, um, there's so much more stuff that you can do on the top rope that makes it a little more believable that you would go back to that type of situation.
0: Yeah. And on the floor, they, they, they didn't even try this fang DT thing at all. They just moved on immediately, which is like, to me, that was like, so good. I, I even said, like, you could show that as like a how to move on from a botch basically like yeah. to a you know, wrestling school or something. Cause they, they did a perfect job. Uh, the semifinal. Jay White defeating Tai Chi in 1507 with the Blade Runner, moving him to three and three and dropping Tai Chi to two and four. Um, you know, this started out well because I thought mutual stalling was about the only way it could have started. Um and they, this is also one of the matches where the American announcers helped it because like when Gator went after Miho, Kevin Kelly got like really worked up. <laughs> like started shouting about how he was a piece of garbage. So that was good. It made you it got you into the match. Um after that, like I don't know. Like, I think a, I think this match would have worked better in Tokyo where a lot of the crowd already loves Chi because like they went through all this stuff with Miho to try to get the crowd behind Chi in the match and make him a baby face, and it didn't really work that well. The crowd still wasn't really that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like when Taichi like, low-blowed Jay White after Jay White tried to low-blow him first and then knocked Gato off the apron and tried to pin White with the Gato Clutch, that was such a cool spot. And if that had been the finish, I think it would have been perfect but Gator recovered to pull the ref out, which was like, okay, why is this not a DQ like it was a few shows ago? So that was annoying. Um, at the end of the day, I ended up going three and a quarter. Like, there was some appeal here to the whole, like, two balls collide thing, mm-hmm. but some really cool spots in it. But, like, I don't know, it became way too much about the seconds, and it really didn't need the fucking Blade Runner reversal dance that had the end either, which it just felt yeah. like, felt even more shoehorned into this than it does in some Jay White matches.
1: Yeah, I think I'm roughly in the same place as you. I went three and a half. Um, I do want to highlight a couple things that I really loved. Um, I actually thought that regardless of the crowd reaction to him, and I did think that it you know picked up as the match went on, but I was really surprised at how well tai Chi worked as a babyface in this match. Um, I thought that he did a great job of being the lesser of two evils and somebody who at least has a principle to him Like, you know, like, uh, Jay White, you get the sense that he will try to protect Gato if it costs nothing to him. But the moment that, um, you know, he has any sort of calculus of it's me or him, he's just going to throw this guy aside. But Tai Chi really does care about Miho. And um, their, you know, dynamic is one of the the best recurring things uh, throughout this tournament. Um, I loved how... Uh there was that point where Jay was uh waiting for the stall fest to to run out. And he just kind of sat up on the turnbuckles like uh Tyler Breeze used to do. And then it cuts to Tai Chi and Miho, and Miho just like has this sweetest, most innocent smile and just like puts her uh head in her hands like she's dozing off for a cute little nap. And <laughs> that dynamic of like lovable rogues uh tai chi and miho even if it only is there for one match um i thought they so easily and so naturally slotted into it so i was very much impressed by that but like you said um it is a jay white match and it is a match that is subject to a lot of the same bullshit that's been dragging his whole tournament down so three and a half for me uh good match with some memorable moments but definitely did not need all the bullshit that i had
0: i mean and this was the match too where i tweeted like jay white is my least favorite competitor in this tournament which somebody was like oh but am i'm like least favorite is not worst you know foul is clearly the worst but jay white like first of all he's in a more prominent position yeah. and second of all i just like i there's so many fucking matches where i'm like i can see some potential here you could do something here but you just fuck it up so yeah. and this was not- one where i saw the potential of these two sleeves balls colliding you know like you said putting over like taichi and miho is like a you know this like you said lovable rogues and like you know really getting taichi over to a face in this match and like i don't it, but, but jay white just dragged it down again and it mm-hmm. felt like it was you know no fault of anybody else involved it just felt like it just doesn't work so yeah
1: and i i, I think a good point of comparison between uh like Fale and white here is that like we all kind of expect that from Fale at this point. But Jay White, I was very... I'm very disappointed with this tournament this year because he had a maybe slightly better tournament last year, but that was also when he was in the 2018 A block, which was a really bad block. So yeah. I kind of expected that, like, okay, well, put him in with a block that's full of really good wrestlers. Um, You know, Naito, Juice, uh Ishii, uh, Shingo, Moxley, uh, and he's gonna have some great matches. But it turns out, like, what, one of those has been
0: a good match of the yeah, ones have, I've been so far? I have two. I have two so far. That's it. Yeah. So I, I, I,
1: can... I, there are, I think two matches, same for me, that we've um, really enjoyed. And yeah. I think that the Falle stuff is a lot more forgivable when he kind of is the off night for a lot of people. He is the source of two free points. He's at, like, what, four points now, Fale? Yeah, four um, points, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like that what they're doing with him this year is to say that, like, okay, well, we're going to have him end at something like six points two years in a row, and then that's going to be the justification to just, you know, kind of quietly shoo him out of the tournament in future years after we spent so much time, like, uh, making him this monster who uh, averaged 10 points in his first few years. So... I can forgive a lot more of what they're doing with Fale because there is a context to it that I can understand. Um, yeah, exactly. Jay White is again, somebody who has a tremendous amount of talent. I love his character work, all the the stuff that he says when he like, uh, you know, slides out the ring at the start of a match and starts talking about how smart he is and all that. That's really fun and entertaining. It's just that the moment he is forced to do wrestling moves in any kind of order, um, he loses everything appealing about him.
0: Yeah. Um, And and obviously, he's also just in a far more prominent position. He's probably going to be in the match that decides the block, if not, you know. I mean, it will partly decide the block. It could be the one where the winner just goes through. So, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a way more prominent position. The main event, Hiroki Goto defeating Tomohiro Ishii in 1801 with the GTR. Moves Goto to 3-3 and and drops Ishii also to 3-3. This is a tough one for me to talk about because it's like, it's one of these matches where I think you can, it's a critique. I I have this critique for this match that a lot of the people had about Ishii and Naito, where like, I think this this was just their generic match. Um, Like, I think you could close your eyes and imagine the exact match they had which isn't a bad thing when it's these two, but I really can't go higher than four stars on a match like that. Like there was nothing that made it stand out to me. There was nothing they did that was remotely unexpected. Um, It just felt like the exact, I don't know, felt like a computer playing out a simulation of the Ishii Goto match that would, you know, happen. So, you know, it wasn't, that's not to say it wasn't really good. It just didn't have anything special to take it above that level
1: yeah absolutely. um so what what, what range did you come down on for it? Uh, four stars four stars talking about a four star autopilot, this could be any match that they had match, and yet Yano, where is their respect? <laughs> um, sorry i I will try to beg that drum a little less uh, but uh spoiler, I also give a very high star ready to the last Yano match. But the point is about this, um, I agree absolutely with your sense of uh, this is just a match that they could have, Um, but I actually thought that it was a little worse than the kind of archetypal Goto Ishii match. Um, I thought that they worked surprisingly slowly. Um, I think that these two work best when they both are very fired up and when they're kind of ramming into each other at maximum speed with these, you know, uh, shoulder blocks where Uh, either both of them stand still or one of them just gets, uh, you know, bounced back to the ropes and comes back with another shoulder block or when they, you know, do these like very uh, fast lariat exchanges or, you know, like other running strike exchanges. But this felt like it was a little chiller in its pace than a lot of their other matches. So I don't know, it did not do anything for me. It certainly didn't help uh, with my perceptions that, Goto is having a pretty bad tournament. Um, he hasn't seemed to find a lot of that spark, except in you know, rare cases like his match with Naito, where he really did look pissed off and like that you know sort of uh, very angry, fiery killer that we know he can he can be on occasion. But this was two and three quarters for me. Um, I felt like it was even a step below the match that you would uh, uh, see when you kind of close your eyes and imagine
0: a Goto Ishii match and overall for the night uh not a great night you know very, very middling again i went it's like a 3.6 average rating so pretty good show uh nothing terrible which you know was better than the last few nights I Had a lot of stuff under three but just only a couple matches of four flat and nothing above that so not you know not to standard some of the other nights the g1 mm-hmm. uh that brings us to this weekend in osaka uh night 13 which was the A block night in Osaka on August third. Um oh, in yeah. the Ideon Arena Osaka. Um it did this whole tournament, both nights, I don't think it's a swore to say, felt like we really broke out of the, the mid tournament malaise here with some, two really great nights here. Mm-hmm. But I think that started with into, Osaka. night What were you gonna say? Sorry?
1: Oh I'm sorry. Uh I said this uh this might have been the best A block night for me.
0: Um it, it think I think it was for me. Oh no, it was just below. <sighs> just for like some of the other ones, yeah. Yes. So but it was it was up there. Um so it opened up with Kenta and Bad Luck Fale. Uh Kenta beat him in seven twenty. Or no, Fale beat him with seven twenty and a school boy. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So I moved to two and five and four points and dropped Kenta to four and three with eight points. I think I see Schoolboy. I'm just like, well, that has to be cool. <laughs> a Fale uh uh, folly lost, but no bad luck folly won a match with schoolboy folks uh of course, it was a distraction roll up, which you know isn't very good who likes distraction finishes, but um I didn't think it was the worst folly match of the tournament. I thought it was perfectly fine it's a little dull most of the way, but then I had to take points off of that finish, so yeah. I only went I went two and a quarter
1: two and a quarter for me too. I think it would have been like in the roughly three star range um without that. Horrible finish of like, look at this point, Fall Age looks like the biggest joke in the world. And I get that you need somebody to give people points and kind of uh, make the math work like you can do with Yano and B Block. But to have somebody who is this 350 pound super heavyweight um, need to win with a schoolboy off a double distraction. Um, it's not even that, like you know, he's getting this double distraction, and then he's using that to, um, you know, get some kind of uh, interference blow against Kenta, and then lay him out with the bad luck fall. It's that he's doing a schoolboy. Like you cannot take this guy seriously at all whatsoever anymore. So yes. in a quarter, um, it really feels like they're kind of done with Fale at this point, and uh, I would be surprised if we see him in next year's tournament because uh, it just feels like they're, they've kind of given up on him in this role that he had in um, the G1 uh, 2017 and earlier, where, you know, he's this guy who will get a high score, will be this daunting mountain to climb, and will make the math work however you need to uh, make it work.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, it, it kind of feels like right now, like that... Like, look, if when, when he came back to that Okada feud at the start of the year that was like groan. Like, why are we doing this again? He's already been doing nothing. Um, they can't go back to that again. Like, come on. If we get to fucking February and they're like, all right, it's time for another Okada Fale feud. It's going to be so fucking terrible. Do not do that again. I hope this is like the end now that that, that was the last hurrah for, uh, bad luck Fale as like a major roadblock to anybody. Mm-hmm. Cause actually when he feel like you're saying, it just feels like a complete joke. Um, the second G1 match, Zach Saber Jr. defeating Lance Archer in ten forty-three with another roll-up. This time off the, it was a great counter of the the blackout for the win. Um, so this wasn't a blowaway. Oh, it moves Zach to three and four six points, Archer two and five four points. Not a blowaway match, but a good match. I went three and a half on it. I thought it was a good big versus little match. I like I like that Lance got to do some you know technical wrestling with the arm bar, arm ringers and arm bar counters and stuff. He was. Pretty good at it, not, you know, not, definitely not terrible or anything. So I enjoyed it. Uh, just nothing that, like, you know, knocked my socks off or anything. Yeah. Um, I gave
1: this four flat. Um, oh. I very much enjoyed it. I, this was my favorite archer match of the whole tournament. And I think that they hit a rhythm that I was super into. Um, I think just Zach is really good against much bigger guys. Um, they kind of prevent him from getting into a lot of his bullshit. Like, Oh God, do you remember that new Japan cup run he had in, what was it? Was it 2018?
0: Maybe. Yeah.
1: That was just horrendous. And to try to book Zach as this monster who can just, you know, bend you all around the ring for 25 minutes.
0: sorry. You're talking about when he won the, won the new Japan cup. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was. I agree. It was really bad, and it feels like nobody else agreed with us on that. Oh yeah, no, I, I hated that run,
1: and I think that to build him up as this like super serious guy who is just you know going to be like a monster heel, right? Like dominating ninety percent of the matches um, is such a misapprehension of what makes him good. Zack Saber Jr. is a fundamentally silly guy. And that means that he is really good at hanging on to bigger guys like a spider monkey. He is really good at doing like six moves to you. And then you lay him the fuck out with one move. So I think that he and Archer were a great pair. I love when somebody can do a bit of like mat work, uh, and keep up with ZSJ for a bit and just piss him off beyond belief. um, and I love how plainly desperate um, Zach was throughout this match. I loved when uh, uh, Archer was in the ropes and then Zach locked in two separate submissions on him. First while he was in the ropes and then again as Archer was trying to walk back into the ring. Um, and so I love this idea of how Zach knew that in anything approaching a fair fight, Archer would just lay him out Um, and so he had to be as creative and opportunistic as possible. And, of course, that played into the finish super well, which, again, a uh, match's finish actually connecting to the storyline of the rest of the match is something that's fairly rare in New Japan. But when uh, Archer was so confident in the sense of, oh, yeah, I can just toss this guy across the ring, I can lay him completely out, knock his lights out with one move, Uh, So I can just play with my food a little bit, and that being the moment where uh, things turned on him and he got taken out with that really cool uh, blackout roll-up counter, I thought it was a fantastic way to end that match. So um, I'm starting to get why people really like Lance Archer, and I think that matches like this and a Tanahashi one are a great showcase for the parts of him that I very much enjoy.
0: I will say the the one one critique I've seen other people say on Twitter and I agree with is, um, it is kind of silly that Lance Archer is entering this match two and four and he's still like I don't know super overcompetent playing with his food. It's like, buddy, you haven't been in this tournament in five years, and you're right now staring at two and five. If you lose this match, and you know maybe you won't be back next year. You should maybe take this a little bit more seriously and not like be joking around so much. That's very fair. And I, I do think that there is this
1: kind of weirdness this year in terms of the in-ring story of people's matches being a little disconnected from their score, right? And I think that in B-Block, the example of this would be Shingo, where the commentary is just constantly putting over what how amazing he's looking, you know, what a uh, breakout this is for him and how he's going to have all the opportunities in the world after it. But, like, he's at four points.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Um, and so, like, I love the idea of Shingo having a great breakout and being able to compete in whatever division he wants. Um, a great way to accomplish that is to give him more victories. So, yes. if you're listening, New Japan,
0: and uh-huh. yeah, uh, and after that, we have Royal Osprey and Evil. Okay, so <laughs> Evil beats him 1708 with the evil that STO thing he does, which moves him to four and three, eight points, drops Osprey to two and five, four points. This is like as frustrating as a match um, that I've come across this year, right. in that I thought Evil was fucking awesome here, and I really would love to reward him with a, a higher rating because again, I, I just saw he looked so great, tossing Will around and you know laying this little bastard out, and you know just finally when he catch him, it was just so, like his he held up his end of this match. The problem was William Ospreay, who you know I've there's a couple matches of his I really liked, and I thought I think in general he's been better this year. But in this match, he fucking was back to doing the, like, extra goofy selling on these, like, forum exchanges and, like, the fucking faces to the camera where, like, you know, he, he looks like such a fucking dickhead and not in a good way. just like He just looks like a fucking dipshit. And you know, they did the spot where Evil had to just kneel there for the Robinson special, that like that spinny kick thing he does, just like in that Lance Archer New Japan Cup match that a lot of other people liked a lot more than I did, which is like, I can't take your fucking fishing sequence seriously if you're requiring a guy to just kneel on the ground for no reason, with no setup, you didn't do anything to even remotely incapacitate him, he just suddenly kneels there and waits you to kick him. Like, you have to set up that sequence better than that.
1: Yeah, because the, um, the setup to that was that I think Evil tried to do like a German and then Will just backflipped out of it. But there was no sense that like Evil had expended energy on that. He hadn't been hit by another move. Yeah.
0: It's just like, it looks so fucking terrible. And I couldn't believe that people, people get like, people say that's like nitpicking, but I'm like, it looks fucking stupid. How is that nitpicking? So, i don't know it yeah. really drove me crazy i went three and a half on it because you know i, I thought like they, there were some really cool spots like you know this really really cool flip counter of the sto which was you know like kind of shows you the two sides of him oh is like
1: when he does like a, a his kind of like flip into a power bomb.
0: yeah pretty much yeah
1: i think he started doing that a whole lot since i stopped watching and i'm a big fan of that um I think that's the right kind of convoluted anime bullshit that Will Ospreay needs to be doing. But um, funnily enough, I didn't think that that Robinson special setup was the worst Ospreay uh, spot setup in this match. Uh, Because at least it was part of an otherwise very hot finishing sequence. For me, the worst one was... uh, Do you remember right after um, Will... uh, Or rather, Evil got stuffed on his attempt to do the aided magic killer. Mm -hmm. And Will just comes off the ropes doing his handspring backflip kick. Um, And again, that was even less of a situation where it made any sense for Evil to get hit by that. Because at least in the Robinson special one, there was the sense that like, okay, Evil has just expended some energy trying to uh, you know hit a move and he's ended up on his back because that's where you end up when you throw a suplex. But here it was just evil is trying to set up this move. It doesn't work. And then he just stands there perfectly still watching Will Ospreay uh, dive into the ropes and backflip off of them for like three seconds solid. And that was the one that took me out of it most. I ended up at the same place as you, three and a half stars. Uh I also thought Evil looked amazing in his match, and I even thought that Osprey looked really good in the finishing sequence. I think that him having those really elaborate finishing sequences where kind of like uh realistic logic breaks down and it is just this kind of you know we're both uh you know firing at hundred percent and getting all our coolest moves off that can be really fun and will Osprey often does it really fun um but So much of the setup to this match uh, was right back to all this Will Ospreay bullshit that, you know, you always hope he's going to mature past and, you know, figure out how to um, become more of a well-rounded wrestler, but it does just kind of look you right in the face in matches like this.
0: So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I saw a lot of people went a lot higher on it, so I did want to point out, you know, a lot of people liked this a lot better than we did, but just... You know, I get it. I mean, if the William, like, if his fucking faces and everything doesn't annoy you as much, I could see why you're willing to go a lot higher, even if you, you know, ignore those, uh, uh, the terrible spots we just talked about. But, you know, I just can't see going any higher than like three and a half for me because I just, his, his the, the Williamness, I guess, <laughs> like, really came through in this match where, you know, I gave four and a half to some of the other matches because it didn't come through. Like the Okada one and the Abushi one, it didn't come through like that. But here it was just like, I don't know. He's been he's been very feast or famine for me in this tournament. I have, I have two four and a halfs, a four stars against uh, Lance Archer, and then a three and three quarters. But then I also have a two and a half, um, you know, which was the match with uh, I guess it was a match with Fale, a two and three quarters against Zach, and now a three and a half against Evil, where he probably should have been even higher. But just you know, again, yeah. especially with with what Evil performed in this match, but he just couldn't get up that level. Um, okay, the semifinal: Kota Ibushi defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi in fifteen fifty three with the and um, to move to five and two, 10 points, essentially eliminate Tanahashi at four and three with eight points. Um, this was awesome. You know, I didn't, I, I liked. It, it felt like a more condensed version of their other matches. I didn't quite like it quite as much as uh, the their power struggle match or their G1 match last year two years ago, whichever year it was. Perfect. Um okay, it was last year. And I liked them doing like the they did like a really cool Texas cloverleaf tease early on, which is like when Tanashi got him in that and I thought it was showed that he was like desperate to win this. Um they were like Ibushi we saw Tanahashi hit that high fly the high fly flow cross body to the floor a bunch of times. So when Ibushi like jumped up all of a sudden out of the apron and then like leaped and hit the out that was just such a cool spot especially since we've been like so primed for it to get the crossbody to the floor. Um, there was like, they did pro- that, that midair double double stomp Ibushi does. Sometimes it can look really, really ridiculous. Like what was the other guy even going for, but I thought this was like the most natural it ever looked because Tanahashi had been targeting Ibushi's legs and he went for like another basement drop kick. And, you know, Ibushi just jumps the last possible second and hits that midair double stomp. So it was great. Um, and then Coda, you know, they, they did a thing where they have the strike exchange where Koda like, you know, suddenly looks, uh, you know, really get gets really flustered when he gets hit in the face. Um, he went, he started going nuts for that. Uh, and then Tanahashi actually like was, was was holding his own, and that strike exchange he was hitting some really brutal uh, slaps to the face before Bushi busted out that awesome charge up lariat to to put a stop to that. Um, and then of course when he he busts out the. Uh, Ya'o yeah, call, and the Bame against Tanahashi. It's even more awesome than usual because of the, all the history with him and Nakamura. Um, and there was like an a excellent roll-up off the Kamagoe, which was a really great near-fall that I thought even Tanahashi could have won with that, and especially, especially since he's won with so many roll-ups already. Yeah. Uh, but then Kota just like, he, I, the finish was like perfect. He just kicks him into goo, he hits two, like, two high kicks right to the side of the head, hits the Kamagoe definitively puts him away. You know, it's not, I I hesitate to call it passing on a guard because I'm sure Tanahashi will still always be around and near the top, but it definitely felt like they were saying like, look, Kota is above Tanahashi. Now he is the leader of Seki Goon. I mean, just for a hunt whatever you want to call it. It just felt like they were really going out of the way to say like, he is the guy now on the baby face side. So, you know, I thought that the finish was awesome. I loved the match Went four and a half stars.
1: Yeah. I, i really enjoyed this um i really thought that like you said this idea of desperation coming out of tana's part uh was very palpable and for him to uh you know instead of being like this you know ace golden god that he's been for so many years for him to like realize that like oh yeah i am outmatched this time (laughs) i'm going to win it will be through being the canny veteran who can do what's unexpected and, and use that like deep wall of experience. Um, I thought that was a fantastic dynamic. And also like, I think this was the first time where I really bought Coda's G1 story this year um, because, you know, they did the thing with him that they love to do of uh, kind of start him off pretty cool and then gradually have him go on a, a tear. And uh, I think it's you know, I think fairly likely that he might win the block at this point. Um, but this was the first match where it really felt like, Oh, okay. I now fully believe in him winning the block as opposed to just, you know, kind of coasting along until he gets to the uh, finals. Um, so I thought that the fact that he, for the first time, like hit some of his really classic spots that he's been denied from having all tournament, um, Like, there's that amazing uh, countering the aces high with a kind of uh, leaping up uh, super Rana back into the ring that I just thought looked absolutely gorgeous and really sold this idea of, like, no, Coda has gotten over whatever funk he was in at the start of this match, or at the start of this tournament. He is here, and he will kick your ass, and he is exactly as good as you remember him being. So, Four and a half stars for me, fantastic match. Um, and it really made me excited about a Coda whoever final. Um, whereas I had kind of had a little bit of reservations and had been wondering, honestly, if Kota had lost a step um, in the year that I would uh, not been watching.
0: And then we have the main event of the evening, which is Okada and Sonata. Sonata giving Okada his first loss. So Okada drops to six and one. And Sonata is now three and four. He beat him in 29-47. Uh, with the Moonsault. So, um, I'm. I why don't you go first on this one? Because I wonder if we're going to be very different on this match.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I... It was a four-star match for me. Okay. I thought that this is the sort of match that whether or not you go into it spoiled hugely determines how you feel about it. Um, and it is the sort of match where Um, For better or worse, nothing matters except for the last minute or so. And, you know, I think that I've kind of made clear uh, by this point in the podcast that I'm very skeptical of very long matches at this point. And I think that that sense of, oh, okay, they're working very slow for the first section of this. I know what's going on. They're going to get very close to the end. Let's just kind of fast forward to there already. that really marred the first, you know, honestly like 15, 20 minutes of the match. But I really thought that that last sequence was stellar. Um, I thought that it hit, it it really showed Sonata's potential as a serious wrestler, which is something that I'm not very high on in most circumstances, but it was uh, an amazingly high drama set of exchanges. Um, I love the commentary kind of just, you know, pointing out, like, this might be the moment that he regrets most in this match where he thinks, oh, he should have gone for, uh, you know, a cover here. He should have kept the skull end in here. Um, And I think that there was enough genuine drama to say, like, it's not obvious what happens when it hits that very final section. It could be that they kind of give him this moment of, oh, it it was so close and he loses at, you know, 29 40, it could be that they go to a time limit draw and it could be that they finally have him, you know, beat that demon of his and, uh, you know, take that next step. So, um, I thought this was a really good last couple minutes that could only be that good by being the last couple minutes, because they certainly wouldn't have had as much drama if that was all taking place, like, you know, at minute 20, but, um, you know, kind of the double-edged sword here is that it did mean that we had so much time of very slow, very Okada and Sonata-esque buildup uh, of just marking down time. So I very much have two minds about this match. Uh, four stars. Uh, I totally see the arguments to shoot it up even higher, but um, I think it just dragged too much in the beginning for me to really, really
0: embrace it. See, now I'm very much on the other side. I, I went four and three quarters on this. I mean, this is the second time I've gone four and three quarters on Okada Sonata. I I like this just a little bit below the New Japan Cup final match. And in both cases, I actually liked the opening like 10 minutes, even though it's slow and methodical. I thought they told a very effective story of, you know, Okada is not taking this man seriously. You know, I, I didn't think it was pointless and just like there to pad the time. Like I thought they told a story of Okada being on a level above and... You know, they, the way they turned the crowd, too, where the crowd was not really, like, 100% behind Sonata at the start, but, like, by the time Okada did that one-foot pin, you know, after that, that brutal DT on the floor, I thought they really got behind Sonata for the rest of the match. So I hesitate to call that first 10 minutes pointless, and I, I definitely don't think – I don't even really think it was boring. I just think it was – you know, it was it was slower paced for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the one match other that that where I did think the opening 10 to 15 minutes were bo- really boring – was the wrestling Dantaku title match, which is the only one of the three, like I didn't like at all. Like I went four and three quarters on this, four and three quarters in Japan Cup final. I think I went like three and a quarter on that Dantaku match. So very extremes there between these three matches. But um, yeah, this was like you know you got the one for pin, the crowd structure once Sonata. I mean the match structure when Sonata went to that dive on the floor and the crowd was going nuts for him which was really good. Um, there was like a really great reversal sequence ending with the rope assisted magic killer. Um, and then Okada got like really fired up, telling Sonata to hit him harder on the forearm exchange. Um, you know, the skull encounters, like I said, that could be very hit or miss. I thought the one where he countered, where Okada countered straight into the short arm Rainmaker, they got absolutely perfect. Uh, they did the, 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 the uh, Rainmaker counter into a short arm Lariat by the other guy again, which I think is a great spot with the skull maker, I guess you could call it with Sonata. Um and then, like, the drama down the stretch, like you said, was just amazing. You know, I was really rooting hard for Snotta here, someone that likes him in general. And, like, you know, I can understand people saying, you know, it's predictable because Okada, you know, the champion starts 6-0 and and then loses. They've done that theme a few years in a row. But that doesn't mean they had to do it here, especially when you're in the last few minutes, you know, when you're watching. Like, like someone got on me on Twitter for that. But it's like, look, when you're watching the last few minutes, it could have been a title of draw. Yeah, that would not have that would not have eliminated Ibushi. Ibushi would have been three points back and still would have, you know, had you know has a direct match against Okada remaining. So it did not have to be an Okada, you know, a Sonata win here. So they could have done the draw. So I I I totally disagree with this idea that they were somehow not drama down the stretch. Like that to me is like you're looking to not like it at that point. You know, maybe that's harsh, but it's like if you really have convinced yourself, especially like if you're watching spoiler spoiled, of course. You already know what's gonna happen. But if you're watching it unspoiled, you know, there's no reason why there couldn't have been a time limit draw when you get down to the last 13 seconds. Um, you know, so Okada gets the knees up, which I, I was like so angry when he did that. And by the time Sonata gets him back in the skull end, Okada's like struggling forever. And I thought the skull end didn't look horrible. And then Sonata hits those two moonsaults. I'm you know, fish pumping by the time he finally hits that second moonsault and gets the pin. You know, any match which has me like Legitimately jumping out of my seat, you know, like literally jumping up, when the guy gets the pen, I'm gonna have high marks for. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, so this was a really, really great match. Four and three quarters from me, uh, at the time, became my, actually, I think it's my second best match of the tournament at this point. So right behind Night Donnie G E. So uh, really, really great match.
1: Yeah.
0: So overall, this night uh, definitely in the upper. Echelon here. I went with 3.7 average. You know, only dragged down really by that fale Kenta match. With everything else being, you know, at least pretty good. And then obviously, you know, these when the when the cards came out and they had announced Tanahashi, Ibushi, and Okada on back to back. I had those two circled, and they did not disappoint at four and a half and four and three quarters. All right, so that brings us to the last show we're going to talk about here, the other Osaka show from earlier today, as we're recording this Sunday, August fourth, which is night 14. Uh, it opened up with Juice Robin, or not Juice Robinson, Tomihiro Ishii and Toro Yano. Uh Ishii beating Yano in 936 with the vertical drop frame buster to move to four and three, eight points, drops down on three and four six points. Uh, again, as the official Yano fan here, why don't you give us the big why don't you start with this one?
1: I would be honored to. So um I think I mentioned that like as much as I'm a big Yano fan, I Gave most of his matches, uh, you know, for the first half of the tournament, maybe something like in the low three stars, like three quarter, three and a half range. Um, And I think that a big part of that was compared to last year where he had this very unique gimmick going on of being fair play Yano all of a sudden and breaking away from that in different ways in every match. It did feel like a lot of the jokes were pretty samey in his first several matches this year. And so what happens when he busts out a joke that I haven't seen from him before, uh, is I end up loving the match. And the joke here was, what would it look like if Yano just had a normal-ass New Japan Pro Wrestling match? (laughs) Um, And to go for like, I mean, this was still a pretty short match, right? But it was something like nine minutes. Um,
0: Yeah, a little under 10.
1: Yeah, his longest match of the tournament. his longest G1 match that I remember and his longest singles match in general that I remember, um, you know, almost at any point. Um, and for him to, uh, slot so, uh, effortlessly into this like parody of an Ishii style, right. Of having these like hard hitting fast strike exchanges, um, being so animated with all of that, throwing like a suplex here and there, um, and trying to, like, you know, uh, fighting spirit away the pain when Ishii headbutts him, only to get headbutt again, then try to fighting spirit it away again, then get headbutt again and just collapse the floor. There were so many good moments here. And it really gives me more faith that Yano does have a lot more in his comic well and that he can keep having these really fun, really unique matches that are a change of pace genuinely and not just, okay, well let's have the same Yano match. So four and a quarter for me, absolutely fantastic. Um, Great use of Ishii's talents too. Um, I think that, you know, we've talked about like the value of the straight man in these circumstances and Ishii is one of the best. And for him to just, you know, so also naturally slot into having this hard hitting match against Yano, I thought really spoke to his versatility and uh yeah just overall a treat to watch and uh i hope you also gave it a good
0: rating so uh, before i give my rating i want to just mention i looked this up now because i was curious sure he did have one match last year in the g1 that was longer than this one do you want to guess against two? Oh no was it his tamatanga match no it was zach saber jr oh that's right it so went 10:34. that's right that was the only one, though. He had another match against uh, against Kenny Omega that went nine oh four. So that was close, uh-huh. but it was but it wasn't quite as long. And his longest match before that would have been against Davey Boy Smith in the twenty eighteen New Japan Cup. That went twelve forty five. Wow. So, yeah. Um. But yeah. So this was uh, I, I agree. I went through. I mean, I don't. I didn't go quite as high as you did, but I went three and three quarters. <laughs> um my favorite yano met so far um you know a very hot start uh i kind of wanted yano to get the pin on one of those rolls because it would have been funny but this was still better to me look i give this a better rating than osprey and evil so oh yeah people want to mad at me online for that i guess they can yeah i'm uh, sure to be mad at john
1: and not at me all my opinions are unimpeachable um and definitely don't yell at me for disliking Will Osprey, a lot of people's wrestler of the year candidate,
0: um, as much as I do. Juice and Taichi was the next match. Taichi got the win in 1228 with the Black Mephisto, moves him to three and four and drops Juice to three-and-four. Um, so I thought it was a little bit dull and interesting after some good crowd brawling, but then it really picked up after like this awesome backdrop counter of the pulp friction, this huge axe bomber from Tai Chi. Uh, and then we got into all the whiskey stuff, which at least if you're going to do interference, it should at least be funny interference. And oh, yeah. I did like juice punching the whiskey out of Kanamar's mouth and then Tai Chi channeling the drunk uncle of his own with his own whiskey spit for the near fall. That was great. And then he just hits the super kick and the and fist stuff for the pen. Um, I couldn't quite get this four, but I, I still went three and three quarters. I still really liked it. Yeah, it was four
1: for me. Um, I definitely agreed that it did sag in the middle, but, um, a lot of what I loved about the last several minutes is that, you know, there are these two Tai Chis, right? There is the scumbag, uh, interference heavy, shenanigans heavy Tai Chi, and then there's the hard hitting brawler Tai Chi. And this felt like the first match to really reconcile those two in a very effective way. Um, because what would keep happening is that Juice had one mode of this hard hitting, fiery baby face who is just going to, you know, Punch you in the mouth, clothesline you, uh, use his superior size, use his heart, and just you know completely dominate you physically. And the way that um, Tai Chi ended up reacting to that was to switch between those two modes of his very effectively. And when one of them started failing him, he would just transition into the other uh, to keep juice guessing and keep him on his toes. And I think that that was a great use of the fact that they're still not a hundred percent sure where they want to like position Tai Chi going forward. But I think this was a great use of him. Uh, Juice plays off so well against these really kind of sleazy, despicable guys. Um, You know, he obviously has really great chemistry with Yana or sorry, with, um, uh, with Switchblade. I remember him having that incredible match uh, for the U S title last year where, at the start of it i was just not invested at all but they completely won me over um and i think that he's the exact right baby face to put in that type of situation so really fun match uh like you said it did have a pretty boring middle but i it didn't last long enough that boring section that um it really soured me on the rest of the match and again tai chi is just a really pleasant surprise you know um, and people who rate all his matches low by default are cowards.
0: <laughs> I, I can't disagree. I can't agree with that more. I almost said disagree, which is very... Yeah. As but, a leader
1: of Kaichi Twitter, uh, <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> in a good position
0: to give him respect. Goto and Cobb, the next match. I can blow right through this. It was every Goto Cobb match I've ever seen. Very generic. I uh, Didn't hate it or anything. Had a good stretch run that saved it. But uh, Goto won 1120 with the GTR. <laughs> Moved to four and three, dropped Cobb to three and four. I was nice and gave it three and a quarter. Don't even over-deserve that. Uh, Two and a quarter for me. Um, And I
1: think that a good
0: indication
1: of what was wrong with this match is that I watched it several hours ago at this point, this morning. Um, It is late afternoon right now. And I already only remember one spot from it. (laughs) There was a pretty cool spot where both of them had underhooks on the other, and it was a leverage battle of who was going to throw who. Um, And that's it. That is literally all that I can tell you about specific spots that happen in this match. The rest of it just completely sort of washes over into this generic sense of allegedly being hard hitting, but both people just working with this really kind of um, you know low energy, stagey style. So, uh, not a big fan of this
0: match at all. JY and Moxley. I mentioned earlier that JY had two good matches, and this was or two really good matches, and this was the other one for me. That it was. Uh, very, very surprising. Actually, I was I was not looking forward to this one at all going in, but ended up over delivering. Uh, White one in fifteen fifteen with the Blade Runner, moved him to four and three, and dropped Moxie to five and two. So here's what here's the the thing with this. Um, I thought the brawling stuff was pretty decent, and then back in the ring w- where we talked earlier, actually about like how Jay, in a lot of ways, just has a lot of moves, right? Mm-hmm. And here I thought. His moves, his moves with a Z, they really worked in the context of the match where they told this story where, like, you know, Jay was almost his underdog. And, again, this maybe points to him being miscast as a heel. But, like, he, he was almost his underdog against this big, established guy who, like, John Moxley was doing a good job, like, just carrying himself, like, these moves were barely affecting him, and j would keep throwing more and more at him, and Moxie would just keep, like, getting up. So I thought that really worked. Like, Moxie carried himself as, like, this big wall, and White, like, carried himself as, like, this underdog who would, like, throw all these wacky suplexes and stuff at him. I thought that really worked. Now, because this is Jay white we didn't get a satisfying conclusion to that uh, match thread, so I can't really give it, like, an awesome rating. But, you know, even the Gator running and cheating stuff at least then led to like a, a great comeback with Moxie with like the giant lariat and the regal knee. And then the ending at least wasn't this ridiculously ex- excessive Blade Runner reversal dance like there's been in some other J. White matches. It was just like one Blade Runner into the Death Rider, into the Super Suplex, and then you know, J. White hit the Bloody Sunday, which would have worked better if the crowd reacted to it at all, which they didn't, and then hit the Blade Runner for the win. So I went four flat on it. I thought it was J. White's second best match of the tournament. Like I said, I had some flaws and like, you know, would have worked better if they could have gone all the way with the story they were telling in the middle, but I still thought it was really good.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, um, especially that point you made about, uh, what to do with Jay White's moves with a Z, uh, is one that is super important here. Um, because again, like thinking about back to my own days as a dipshit backyarder, um, being like the top heel of our little rinky dink promotion, uh, and wanting to do cool moves because I had just got into wrestling and I'd watch a bunch of Noah and Dragon Gate and Ring of Honor and I was like, I want to be all those guys. Um, the thing that you learn eventually as a heel is that like you can have cool moves, but the thing that you need to do with them is figure out how to use them to cut off a baby face's momentum. You can't just string a bunch of moves together and call that a heat section. So for Jay to be working from underneath as that underdog to basically just use so many of those moves to kind of give himself a moment to breathe after Moxley has been wailing on him with his really stiff strikes and, you know, his like uh, physical presence that's just off the charts. Um, I thought that was about as good of a use as you can get for Jay White's ridiculous moveset. Um, and I, you know, was very pleasantly surprised by this as well.
0: Then the main event to see Naito defeating Shingo Takagi in 27 15 with the Destino moving to four and three and dropping Shingo to two and five. This is one of those matches where I was super fucking hyped for it going in. Probably my most hyped match of the entire tournament. And they still somehow exceeded my hype level. <laughs> so, like that, sometimes you're so hyped for a match that like even like a really good match can feel like a letdown. This was no fucking letdown. This was amazing. Um, Like, a minute in, this was already great, where Naito, like, gave him this clean break with, like, this huge smirk. Shingo got mad and tried to, like, toss him into the ropes and chop him. Naito ducked and backed off and, like, did the come on, tranquila with a smirk. And then attacked Shingo and he rushed in. I watched that fucking stupid 20-second sequence, like, three times in a row because it was so great. And, like, summed up both of their characters so well. Um and then there was like this high angle sunset flip that I don't even know if they meant to be high angle because so I just kept going through it, but it's so, it like, made that sequence look even cooler. Um, when Naito did like the tranquilo pose of the ring, I'm just going to be reading a whole bunch of spots off people because I love this match. Shingo like tossed a chair back in and like Naito sat in the chair and then like dropped to a hold. Shingo's face in the chair when he came in. Um, you know, this is where it really started to feel like I, I have, if you had asked me how this match was going to go going in, I would have said it would be like Naito as the underdog and Shingo as the big bully heel, especially since NATO needs the two points a lot more than Shingo, mm-hmm. who's already pretty much eliminated. But they went the exact opposite direction when Naito was the veteran heel and Shingo was like, you know, the you know the underdog, and like they totally bought into it in this part of the match. And then it kind of turned the other way where Shingo like was tossing Naito into the barricades, tossed him into the post, and the crowd finally started getting really behind Naito. Um, he like Ca- caught naito on the running destino like turned him around in midair and like power bombed him that was such a cool fucking spot especially since the running destino was like never countered unlike the regular one which is always countered yeah um <laughs> then they did the mid-air reversal of the super power bomb that was this mid-air r- rana rever- like basically Shingo caught Nitro going for the rana naito like grabbed on the top rope to try to stop the super power bomb Shingo gets it anyway, but then Naito turns it into a Rana in midair, which, like, there's a million ways that could have gone wrong, and they hit it perfect. And then Naito runs in for the Destino again, and Shingo fucking kills him with the Lariat, which, again, that was, like, a jump-out-of-my-seat moment. And then Naito got the Naito, like, I'm-enjoying-the-pain smirk in when he was getting all those short-arm Lariats. That was great. Um, then he did the dragon suplex on the dragon, which, again, very, uh, very cheeky of Naito there. Um... And then, you know, Shingo hit the Made in Japan. hit a pumping bomber, which everybody bought as the finish. Naito countered the, the dr- last dragon into a mini Destiny, which was so awesome. Um, and then we had, like, this awesome strike exchange, the 25-minute mark, uh, with Naito just, like, slapping Shingo in the face at the end, Shingo firing back with a headbutt. And then Naito breaks out like a brain buster when Shingo went trying to get on for a suplex, which is not a movie normally does. So that was great. Um Shingo, like, rolled out the Destino and then decapitates him with a lair, another pumping bomber, and then Nitro turns the last of the dragon into a fucking Canadian destroyer. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of moves he never does, that was incredible. Um, and the running Destino gets two, and they finally hit the real Destino for the pin. Five fucking stars for me on this match. The match of the tournament, I have to decide where I have my match of the year with the other two five-star matches. I think I probably have it at number two, right behind Suri and Mika Satomura, but like God, this match is so fucking great. Yeah. It was incredible.
1: Um, these two are just absolutely amazing. Um, is this the first time they've ever wrestled?
0: Yes. Yep, they never wrestled each other
1: before. Oh my god. Yeah, and it's they their dynamic works together so well. And here's the thing you could absolutely run this match as Naito, the sort of cheeky underdog babyface, and Shingo is the bully heel. Um, and so what that means to me is that like, yes, I want to see this match repeatedly, put them in the same block in a G1, maybe like have, you know, Shingo request a title match and Naito grant it for whatever title he's hand, uh, holding at that point. And um, there is just so much to love here. I gave it four and three quarters. It might be five on a rewatch. I'm going to keep you posted on whether it does go up to five, but um, definitely to match at a tournament. Uh, Just a really fantastic display. I talked about how, you know, I feel like a lot of these long matches don't necessarily have enough story in them to sustain that length. This one absolutely felt like it did. There weren't any real dry patches. Um, They had great character work in the beginning that led into great in-ring work as the match wore on. And one of the things I really loved about this match is that it was set up before the tournament with um naito giving this interview where he talked about how i want shingo to bring everything he has against me i want him to treat this like it is a match where he is challenging me for control of lij and um that takes on such a different meaning when this is effectively tournament point for naito uh when he can't afford to lose when He cannot afford to just have this be a competitive match within LIJ that is on LIJ's terms and LIJ's terms alone. He needs to win so desperately, but he still antagonizes Shingo so much and brings out all that anger and brings out all that, you know, will to kick this guy's ass. Um, And I thought that's an amazing representation of Naito's character for him to... You know be so uh dedicated to these uh you know very odd principles of his that he is going to still when he's so desperate for those two points antagonize someone and make it that match uh that he had been hoping for before a tournament started so amazing character work amazing in ring work match of the tournament probably will be the match of the tournament the whole way through um I can't think of anything else. Uh, that remains on the block schedule that uh, looks like it'll top this
0: yeah i mean the only thing i will give i could see maybe topping it is okada ibushi if they have like the absolutely best match they could have but other than that i don't i don't think anything else on the block on the block will top it i uh, want we'll to see what the final is obviously um okay so that show obviously rates very high for me given that it has a five star match, and that brings the average all the way up to three point nine five, mm-hmm. making it my highest rated match of the tournament. So there you go. Oh yeah, or uh, my highest rate show of the tournament. A five, it doesn't. It only has one other four star match, but then everything else is like you know three, three and a quarters, so and three and a quarter, or three, two, three and three quarters, and a three and a quarter. Yeah. So altogether, being a pretty high average. Um, okay, so let's quickly, since we're going a little over time here. I'm going to just say our top five matches of the tournament so far. Why don't sure. you go first? Okay. So, um, and should we just do this one by one? Yeah, sure. Just go uh, through.
1: Number five yeah. for me was uh, Zack Sabre Jr. versus Hiroshi Tanahashi uh, at four and a half stars. I thought it was an amazing sort of, you know, I've talked about like Zack Sabre Jr. being great as this like little shit who you love to see get his ass kicked after he tries, you know, a million clever things on you. And Tanahashi is absolutely the type of crafty veteran babyface who is very much set up to punish that. So fantastic match. Uh, definitely sabers best by a huge margin from this tournament.
0: Uh, number five, I have Ibushi and Osprey from the July 18th Corican. Uh My favorite Osprey match of the tournament. I get one four and a half on it. Yeah. What do you have?
1: Uh, number four, uh, four and a half for Ibushi Tanahashi, which we talked about in this stretch. Uh, just to reiterate, it was uh, the first match where I really remembered why I love Kota Ibushi so much. And uh, it makes me really excited to see him uh, in the finals, which it seems fairly likely that he's going to be the one to make it out of A block.
0: Number four, I have Ishii and Jay White from July 15th in Hokkaido, which I also went four and a half on. My favorite four and a half star match. I just thought it was like, you know, a really incredible match. And like, I thought maybe the start of... White turning the corner. In hindsight, it just ended up being a sign of what a great tournament Ishii was having. So Yeah. Um, number three, I had Ishii and uh, Moxley. Um,
1: this was right at the point where I had just about given hope on Moxley, because uh, his first couple matches were pretty bad. And then this absolutely blew me away. Um it was absolutely the sort of you know hard-hitting brawl that um you always kind of imagine in your head Moxley might have. But then he ends up having something that's much tamer and kind of stagey. But this was the best of both. Um, It was just two pissed off guys kicking each other's asses. And a really fun time to watch.
0: Number three, I have Sonata and Okada from August 3rd in Osaka, which we just talked about, obviously. Four Mm -hmm. and three quarters. Just an incredible match. Yep.
1: Number two, uh, Ishii Naito, four and three quarters, which we also talked about uh, during this. And we've lavished enough praise on it.
0: And I also have Ishii Naito, number two, July 24th, Hiroshima, four and three quarters. And I bet we have the same number one match. Yes. Naito Shingo, August 4th, Osaka, five stars. Mm Mm-hmm. Naito Shingo. That's right. So uh, there you go. Um, Before we wrap things up, why don't we go through the remaining cards this week, and we'll just quickly give the G1 matches, and then we'll each pick a match we're most looking forward to. So it begins on... There's four shows left, obviously, other than the final. It begins on Wednesday at, in the Hamamatsu Arena, the, uh, the second-to-last A-Block show, which has Sonata and Lance Archer, Tanahashi versus Fale, Osprey versus Kenta, Ibushi versus Zack, and Okada versus Evil. Uh, the match I'm most looking forward to is Ibushi and Zack. I thought they, they've had some really, really great matches together, including the match they had this year... At, uh, for the Intercontinental title in Nagoya, and I also really liked their G1 match last year as well. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we that going and have another really stellar match here.
1: Yeah, that's also the one I'm most excited for. Um, I think that not only do they have really good matches with each other, but they have very different good matches with each other. So I'm very excited to see what they uh, come
0: up with this time. Then Thursday, August eighth in Yokohama. The next day we have the last, second to last B Block show uh yano versus taichi jeff cobb versus naito goto versus moxley juice versus jay white and ishii versus shingo it's a little close for me because juice and white is a rematch of a, a match i really loved last year at the in san francisco but i'm still really looking forward to seeing what the hell ishii and shingo can pull out here yeah um, both, had, both had a really good tournament. but maybe this could be another like absolutely outstanding match
1: yeah I think Shingo and Ishii is likely to be the best match of this day, but the one that I'm looking most forward to is uh, Jews versus Switchblade, just because like I'm so desperate to see a Switchblade match that I like at this point. Still really like his character work and uh, want to like him in the ring. So,
0: and then of course we hit the home stretch uh, starting on Saturday with the first of three nights at Pud- Nippon Budokan, August 10th. Uh, we don't have the order yet because it's going to depend on what who's alive, but. I think it's fair to say Okada Ibushi will be the main event. Also on the show is Tanahashi Osprey, Kenta and Zach, Evil and Archer and Sonata and Fale. Uh, I would say I'm most looking forward to Okada and Ibushi. It's been years since we've seen that match, and I'm very excited to see what they can pull out here. Yep. Uh, I'm probably most excited
1: here actually for Osprey versus Tanahashi. Just cause um, as much as I don't like Osprey in a lot of ways, I think that his best matches are against kind of mid-range heavyweights uh, who are bigger enough than him to bully him around and who work a very distinct style from him. So I've loved his matches before with Okada, with um, uh, Katsura Shibata. And I think that I'm very excited to see what he brings against
0: uh, Tanahashi. And then we wrap things up uh, with the B block on Sunday, August 11th, Budokan, before the final on Monday, obviously. Uh, so we have Juice Robinson and John Moxley, Ishii and Tai Chi, Yano and Jeff Cobb, Goto and Shingo, and Naito and Jay White. Uh, even with the fact that White's had a very disappointing tournament, I'm still very excited for that match. Just, just to see what the two of them were able to pull out, I think they'll obviously be motivated to have an amazing match here. So.
1: Yeah. Uh, same here. I think that, you know, we saw from Tai Chi that uh, Tai match with Switchblade that. Um, heroic scumbag versus uh, villainous scumbag is a great mode for uh, Switchblade to be in, and I think that there's no better heroic scumbag uh, in this
0: tournament than Naito, so
1: that's going to be a fun one.
0: And of course, Monday we'll see the finals. Do you still think Naito's winning this? Who do you think is winning the tournament?
1: Um, I can't stop believing it's Naito. I will simply cease to exist if I believe it. <laughs> Besides Nito, is winning a G1 climax year after year.
0: I think it's Naito too, but maybe we're setting ourselves up for that fucking Switch or Blade Runner one, two, three. I hope uh, yeah,
1: well, so I think that the, the most likely thing to happen besides Nito winning is for Coda to beat Switchblade in the finals.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's the, the next most likely thing. So why don't we wrap things up here? Go ahead and give me your plugs, Hannah. Uh, yeah,
1: sure. Uh, I don't have much to plug, but uh, I'm Hannah Yolo on Twitter. That's H-A-N-N-A-H-Y-O-L-E-A-U. Uh, and follow me for, you know, occasional wrestling takes. Um, and I would love to to talk wrestling with some cool people, especially as I get more back into it now.
0: And we'll see, I guess, how the end of the G1 makes you want to, like, keep watching or not. But definitely... has I'm sorry, what were you going to say?
1: It's been a fun tournament, you know, like I still have that love for it. Um, it's not like I've completely lost what, uh, you know, got me into wrestling in the first place. So I would love to keep watching, especially if Haruma comes back from injury pretty soon.
0: Yes, which I think he probably will. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, all right. So, folks, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Wrestle Wrestling doesn't fit. Uh, we'll be back next week. Probably going to wait until after the D1 final and just wrap this whole baby up. So in that case, we'll probably be back either Monday or Tuesday, maybe more likely a week from Tuesday. But in the meantime, of course, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.